In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, O God, glory to thee. Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things. O treasure of every good and bestower of life, come and dwell us and cleanse us every stain and save our souls, O good one. Sit down, please. I'm sure a lot of you have experienced confusion and fall into despair when, when you read things from the holy books and they just sound so scary, they sound frightful, difficult to understand. And a lot of people can even fall away because they come across something which to them it doesn't make sense, it might sound unfair, or it just sounds like orthodoxy is too difficult, salvation's too difficult, and therefore reject it and or make up our own type of um, philosophy, our own type of religion. But the point there is that a lot of times we are not at the level to really understand what's going on. One, one has to have struggled for a number of years, have read a variety of things. So, for example, what I might have read 15 years ago, I understand in a different way now. And especially because I'm preparing a lot of time for these talks now, I'm actually understanding things even more. However, intellectual understanding, just understanding what you read like you would when you go to school or university. It's not good to do that when it's to do with faith, when it's to do with spiritual matters because the intellect, even though we need the mind to help us to understand what we're reading, but most important what we need is the grace of God. And the grace of God can only come to one who is humble. And one can only become humble if one struggles for their salvation. So I always say to people and to myself, because I often come across things that I don't understand, and uh, it kind of, because, oh, this sounds too hard, or this sounds like it's just no point in struggling because it's just hopeless. And I always say to myself and to people as well, just Sometimes we're not ready to understand it. As I mentioned last talk, you can't expect someone in year seven to understand what someone in year 11 or 12 knows, etc. So it's the same as a spiritual life. It's proud for someone to become upset and angry if they don't understand something. We should consider ourselves like the saints often did, they said they, they consider themselves as ignorant and spiritually dull, like spiritually backward. And when we do have this humility, when we approach the word of God, the writings of the saints, with humility, with that type of spirit, then we see how much God 
enlightens us to understand more. And that includes the lives of saints, because we sometimes read, like once I remember reading in the life of a saint that a woman, she was married, she had, she had a child, and then she just left the, the baby and went off into the desert and things like that. So you say to yourself, how can that be? How can she leave a child that she just gave birth to? And I've also, in past talks, which I can't remember now, I think it was talk around the 35, I'm not sure where, I went through a lot of things that I found in different books and, and read them to you and said, this just sounds like when you read it, it just sounds ridiculous at times, it sounds difficult, it sounds crazy, if you remember that talk. And And I think it was the, um, well, there's elders versus religious intellectuals. That's talk 24. I think I did that there. I think it was around there. And why logic and reason in spiritual matters can lead to a loss of grace. That's talk 25. Now that's right. Not in the 30s. The last talk that I did, I spoke about that monasticism in the last times, in general spiritual life, but monastics the last times will not have the same spiritual gifts as the ancient monastics. I read that the early Holy Fathers had revelations from above and uttered prophecies about the monasticism of the last days. All these revelations or prophecies agree with one another and declare that the monasticism of the last times will have an extremely feeble life that it will not be given the abundance of spiritual gifts which the first monks from the first centuries received from God. But not only this, the monks of the last times will find salvation only with great difficulty. St Ignatius Branchinov writes, the monastics of the last times will be few in number and in accomplishments and achievements. So, afflictions and troubles have been especially given to the monks of today, but not only to the monks. If the monks can't do it properly, then how much more the lay people? Yet people read all these monastic books and try to follow to be exactly as the monastics did, when the monastics themselves can't even do it. Such is the will of God for us. May this knowledge be a source of comfort to us. In other words, don't become hopeless, St Ignatius is saying. Don't don't start going on, oh, there's no point. God will try to save those who he knows want salvation. Therefore, let us with all our heart give ourselves up to training, in other words, spiritual training, by troubles. And by troubles is meant sicknesses, sufferings, sorrows, persecutions, demonic assaults, temptations, etc., all these type of things together with the most careful fulfilment of the commandments of the gospel. Those in the last days will have no monastic life whatsoever. In other words, no monastic activity. Of course, there are exceptions, and I said that last time. There are monasteries in Greece, in Russia, in Serbia, in Romania. There are, but very few here and there. And even they themselves admit that they don't have that, the spiritual greatness of the, um, the gifts that they did. But of course, here and there, that happens. I mean, the monasteries in America now under Elder Ephraim, 
They are proper monasteries, but they're descendants of Elder Joseph the Hesychist and things like that. They are exceptions. But in general, monasticism is weak, and in general, spiritual life is weak. But let's go on. But they will be permitted to have troubles and afflictions so that through these trials, through all these sufferings, etc., they will be revealed in the kingdom of God as greater than us and greater than our fathers. In other words, that the Christians of the last times that will not be able to lead the spiritual lives like we read in the ancient books, just from enduring sufferings and afflictions, will be given greater reward than those of the ancient saints. Now, where's that hopeless? In other words, the ancient saints gained their sanctity, a lot of them through their prayers, their fasting, controlling their thoughts, their virtues, etc. However, they had what's called the, the, uh, the deep spiritual life. But today that's very difficult, which we're going to see why in a minute. But not to despair because... The Christians of the last times, which last times, what I mean by that, could be even three, four hundred years from now, I mean, uh, in the future, or even three hundred, four years back, but we do live in difficult situations, they will be considered greater than the, than the fathers and the saints of old, because spiritual life today is much more difficult than what it was then, which, which I explained that last time. I've been reading lately an excellent book. It's called May God Give You Wisdom, The Letters of Father John Krestyankin, a Russian saint. This book is produced by St. Ksenia Skeet in California. He died in 2006 in Russia, and he was considered a very, very spiritual person. And as I was reading his letters that he wrote to his spiritual children, I came across something very interesting, which he basically said right through, which confirms what I said last time. He said, for example, on page 53, we have lived to see such times when only sorrows and sickness can still intercede for our salvation. And that is exactly what was said last week, that today the majority of Orthodox Christians will be saved through sorrow and sickness afflictions and sufferings etc that is the way that they will receive all of us salvation and he says that clearly page 98 our youth are so weak spiritually for they grow up without a solid foundation in belief in god obviously because they were brought up in communism and but but of course in the west let's talk about australia or the us england um i don't know which is worse what they went through in the communist countries or what's going on in Australia with the corruption and, and the West in general with the music and all the sexual things and things like that. Um, many great thinkers of Russia during the time of communism said that the Western spirit kills the soul while communism, even though it was atheist, actually helped people to come closer to God. So this, this concept of the weakness, the spiritually weak, will be a, a theme of, t of tonight. 
And page 23 said, is left to pastors and the children of God only to understand that their strength is not in ascetic labours. What's ascetic labours? Fasting, prostrations, all those type of things. He says that's not where person will gain his strength. And not in learnedness, not in just learning things, but Saint Father John says, but in infirmity, in other words, in sicknesses, etc., which we must accept as our saviour. That's what will save us, which is exactly what the fathers prophesied from years ago, what I read last month about the monastics in the last times, and that also means Christians of the last times. See, I don't even know myself, but when you read these books, these deep philokalias and things like that, deep books, and see what spiritual activity these holy people had, where they would see uh, the vision of God, what that means, I don't know, I've never experienced such a thing. But they would have, see, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And they did see God the divine light. They reached theosis. This is what we're talking about, spiritual activity, progressed spiritual activity. And people of today can't do that. Oh, except for some people that are deceived, that read books and think they can practice it. And they think they're St Anthony in the desert. The, and he goes on on the same page, the experience of pastorship, in other words, eldership and spiritual guidance, where the fathers of all were able to guide, and some still can, but very, very few, of ancient and even recent fathers cannot be translated to these current times. He's trying to say you, it's very difficult to get those ancient guides, like the obstinate elders, and like who were able to tell you that's from God, that's not from God, etc. This is God's will, that's not God's will. Those type of things, this is from the devil, that's not from the, you know, things, all those type of things that he's saying is very difficult to find. Now, I still say, even though he says it cannot be translated as if he's saying at all, but I know that there are some, obviously, here and there who can and still have that ability, that those gifts given by God. God will never, ever, ever leave his people. There always will be some. But those people one of their biggest things that they do is to pray for the whole world. In these times, a few spiritual leaders, page 57, in these times of few spiritual leaders and a general weakening of the faith in the faithful, and that's important, see what he says? Few spiritual leaders, meaning spiritual guides, true spiritual fathers, not just someone that you go and to confess and he might give you some advice here and there, where I'm speaking about here, spiritual guides, elders, those who had spiritual gifts, which I will describe later on. It says because of that, because they're, the people have got weak faith today and because there's not many spiritual guides, the Lord has given people an impartial guide which heals, teaches and instructs. In the, really, we people used to get healed and were taught and were instructed by guides. But there's not many of them around anymore. So Father John is saying here that this is the way it's done now. 
the new guide, to a certain extent, is the burdens of life. In other words, sickness and sorrows. So when people say, oh no, cancer, oh no this, and oh no, um, all these types of people that say, whoa, 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 but the thing is that those things are allowed by God to help people to, to be saved. People's minds are mean and tricky. Their hearts are deceitful and therefore it has become exceedingly difficult to control our actions. The Lord, knowing this, has given us a bitter medicine against the soul's infirmities, physical illness. Now this is very important and he put it so great because I... He says here, people's minds in general have become a tricky, meaning that they're in deception. Someone can act spiritual, but they're not. They're being tricked by their own minds and by demons and things. And people are mean. People in, in their nature become more and more evil. I remember some saints said that there was a prophecy which said that that in the last times the demons won't, won't be doing much work. And they said, why? Because he said, people will become so evil, they'll do it of their own. They won't need us to tell them anymore to do evil. They'll do it of their own. And that's what Father John here is trying to say, that people in general have that problem. And therefore, it's very hard for them to control their actions. It's very hard for them to struggle with their passions, to lead spiritual lives as we know it from what we read. And he says, but God knows that. But he's still given medicine. And the medicine that he's given is physical illness, what he says there. But obviously, in other places he says, and afflictions and sufferings and all different things. This is the medicine for sick souls of today. Doesn't mean, of course, you don't seek guidance from a, from a spiritual father, but don't have a father, the father priest, he is quite discerning. He says that uh, when people come to him, he, he doesn't want them to believe that he has some powers or some type of things as what they've read in the books. Remember the difference between a confessor, which most priests are today, then their spiritual fathers, which do guide to some um, extent, using the writings of the fathers to, with humility. And then they've got the next one up, which is the ones that were full of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which I will explain what, about Elder Leonard in a minute. Now, I'm going to give you three examples of what I mean by people's minds are tricky. Example one, there's a person that I used to try to help years ago and he went to Greece and he spoke to a spiritual father there and the spiritual father uh, uh, kind of told him off in a sense and uh, instead of this person coming out and being humbled he came out and he said to his friends oh he he told me what I am he ripped me apart I'm such a sick person I'm the worst of this and that but all that was theory if someone didn't know they would think that this person was holy woly, but he wasn't. He was mentally ill. And he had fantasy that the spiritual father was telling him off because he was progressed. See what I mean? That's what's called a tricky, the minds, it's all, all over the place. 
Another person once came to me many years ago and he said, I feel pain, you know, he says, I've got, I've got pride. And he was saying these things and then I realised as he was saying them, I said to him, um, what book are you reading? He goes, I'm reading St John of Cronstant. I go, that's a good book. And what are you reading in there? He says, I'm reading in there that a Christian should feel pain and should understand that they're proud. So if you understand what I'm trying to say there, the person was telling me exactly what he read in the book and was saying it. Again, that comes from the fact was what Elder John said early on, that the mind is weak, and especially today because people sit in front of television all day, and especially little children, they're, they're being conditioned to be in fantasy. See, today children aren't active, or people that have grown up in front of the television, they're not active. See, in the old days, people would say, a child would say, I want to do something, so he would go and try and do it. But today, people just sit in front of the TV and fantasise about being a pop star or losing weight or having a girlfriend or having a boyfriend or whatever. And it's all in the mind. So these people just sit in front of the television and their mind is active in the fantasy. And then those people later on might repent or come to the church for whatever reason and their minds are still in fantasy. They've, they've been conditioned. It's quite cruel to put a child in front of a television for the first few years of its life especially. It's like you are actually sentencing the child to a life of mental illness. And I'm talking about people that put the front of the TV when a few months old. A few months, few months, one year, two years, three years, in front of the television. And then um, some doctors, some psychiatrists, are starting to wake up and say that Perhaps the schizophrenia, a lot of today, there is, of course, physiologic, there's other reasons for schizophrenia, but that a lot of it comes from this, they call this Y generations, and X, uh, these Y generations, I don't know, all these, all these new generations that, that they're talking about. And um, they're saying that this recent one, it just doesn't work at anything. That's because... Why they work? Because their whole mind was in front of the television of fantasy. And the video games help as well because there you can just push buttons, at least they do a bit of work. So they're actually moving their hands and they're pushing their fingers. It's about the only work they do. And, that they're, and they're their commandos or they're a model or they're a stud or they're this or they're that, etc. So this is all in their minds. The third person... If I would say to them something like a fault, the person would say, thank you, Father, for telling me my faults. So he would say, thank you for telling me my faults. And he used to grin and be happy if I would even tell him off because he thought that he was... Um, that he must be progressed and all these fantasies in, in the head. But at the end... He couldn't tolerate, not only me telling him his faults, but he couldn't even tolerate anyone, not even his friends. And he used to run, run for the hills. And he became a person that was quite on his own. See, because that was the fantasy. Elder Leonard of Optinum. After acquiring spiritual understanding through divine enlightenment, Elder Leonard clearly discerned between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 
which is what St. John in the epistle says, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That's what's called discernment. Few, even holy people, not all holy people have the gift of discernment. I've said this before. There are people that were saints, holy, pure people, but as soon as they tried to guide someone, the people would go and fall into sins or go to hell because they, couldn't, they didn't have the gift of discernment. Different, like Holiness is holiness, but that's an extra added gift which is given by God to some of the saints, this gift of discernment. So I remember I've told you before that there was a, a, a saint who started to guide people and then people were um, falling away and uh, losing themselves, etc. And it turned out the fact that he just couldn't do it. He could not guide people. Elder Leonard was able to discern between the spirit of truth, the spirit of error, between the action of grace, the, the grace of God, and the delusion of the enemy. Elder Leonard, because he had the discernment, he, of Optina, he knew in the, what, what, what the person's thoughts or the person, what's in their heart, he knew whether that was from God or whether it was from the devil. It's very subtle. It says here, even though the latter be subtle and concealed, there are many people who can appear holy, but they're not. Their experiences, even some spiritual fathers can mistake their experiences as being something spiritual, when in fact it's deception. We, were, we learned that last week in the talk number 42, those who strive for exalted spiritual feelings, joy and peace and love and consolation. We read all those type of things last time, and I think that a lot of you said that you learnt quite a lot from there, that to have true peace, you had to have certain characteristics, to have true love, to have true um, consolation, all these spiritual tears and things like that. We read last time there was so much there from the fathers which explained that a lot of these things can be deception, but they can appear to be real. And that's where an elder, a true elder or eldress, um, has that discernment to know. In every instance and every matter, Elder Leonard clearly perceived and showed others what is pleasing and what is not pleasing to God. And he would judge accurately concerning the state of soul of others, even of such persons who many revered as holy. Remember the example last week of the elder, they thought that this person was holy, and Elder Leonard went and spoke to him, and he, uh, he said to him, How, what do you see? He says, I see the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove or something like that. And Elder said to him, that's not right, that's, you shouldn't do that. And the person said, I thought you came here to be taught by me. But you've come to teach me. Who are you to come teach me? And later on he hanged himself because the grace of God left him. He was deceived, but everyone thought he was spiritual. as we'll hear later on when I do the, fa the section on fasting today, just if you're anorexic, you're spiritual because you look like the ascetics of old. And uh, an Athenite spiritual father was asked, 
For what reason are there so few experienced elders at this present time? Why are there not many discerning elders and elderesses? And he answered, for the reason that now there are few obedient novices, of spiritual children in general. The former proceed from the latter. God first wants people who are willing to be obedient and to be guided, and if he sees that, then he gives holy people to guide. And from my experience, if I can say without offending people, but in general, from my experience, people uh, don't want to be guided and people have become incapable of even following instructions. Even employers and things like that, they've actually said that... um, People, all the, the people coming down, they can't even follow instructions. They can't be obedient at work. I think even doctors have said that people just don't listen. They can't follow when they say to do this, to have this diet. People in general cannot listen because everyone is a professor themselves. Father John Krestiank, in the last one, page 84 of his book, the Lord has placed in your heart, he's talking to a woman now, The Lord has placed in your heart the sure step to return to your family. I pray for your spouse without even knowing his name, for he is not far from God, but you have frightened him off completely with your zeal and egoism. Now, I wasn't going to put that part in. I was going to put it later on. But I like that part because that's a problem today is that when someone changes, say you've got a married couple, one of them changes, they tried to force the other one to change. And he says, see what he says here? Your zeal and egoism has frightened him off. Not all zeal is good if it's fueled by ego. He goes on. In our times, now we see what she was doing, what scared off her husband. If it was me, I would have ran off too. In our times, we cannot take up podvigs which is a, Rush, a Russian word. Podvigs is like a sedical... Um, Podvig is a... Um, Anaskis, he was saying. Uh, sorry? Yeah, like a struggle. Like a podvig could be... A person's podvig could be taking care of their mother, who's very old. A podvig could be a person has a sickness and just has to bear with it. A podvig could be uh, a person who is uh, got a difficult job or a difficult child. It has to take care of them. A podvig could also be self-imposed, like the person puts on their own podvig and say, I'm going to take a podvig, I'm going to fast a lot, or I'm going to do uh, 100 prostrations. You know, these are podvigs, you know, things that help come closer to God. In our times, we cannot take up podvigs, especially self-imposed ones. God can give us podvigs that's safer. But when we take our own on, that's where the dangers happen. Why? He goes on. Pride has darkened our minds and senses to such an extent that these podvigs can bring nothing but destruction. Such music to my ear, one can say, because it's just, this is um, a, a discerning elder who just lived, just died about five years ago, 2006, I think. A great holy father. See the, see the discernment that he had? He wasn't telling people, come here. Now, you read St. John of the Ladder. You read the Philokalia. 
you, I want you to do a thousand prostrations every day and call me to do your funeral when you, when you die from exhaustion and do, do this fasting, etc., etc. He didn't do that. He was very sober-minded and very discerning. See what he said? Because of pride, when people put on self-imposed podvigs a lot of times, they do it because of pride and then they destroy themselves because pride makes the devil come close to us and makes God to leave us. God cannot dwell in a prideful heart. Do not forget you will not be held accountable before God for self-imposed podvigs and fasting beyond what the church requires. The church has certain requirements of fasting, which we're going to go on to later on, and other things. Just do what the church says. And even then, some people can't even do that, but that's where the spiritual father has did the sermon. But he said, that is what we're required to do. Why put on more? Why make yourself look special so that you can get proud and just lose yourself? But you and only you will have to answer for your family and daughter and your husband. Now that is wonderful. And he goes on. You have concentrated only on yourself and ceased to see the needs of your close ones. In other words, what he's saying is you're too busy trying to do all these ascetical things, trying to make up your own podvigs, when you've got your podvig right there, your husband, your daughter, etc. That is your podvig. That is your struggle. Let's see how the devil deceives people and says, that's not spiritual life. Changing nappies is not spiritual life. Cooking for your family is not spiritual life. Spiritual life is what we read in the books. Exalted things, seeing dreams, uh, doing great fasts, and etc., etc. That's what spiritual life is. And he said, no, look for the podvigs which God has given you then and there. Is it a sickness? Take that. Is it your family or whatever? That's the one. He goes, that's what you will give word for. Now, Father... John makes it obvious that we're living in times, because this is 2006 that he died. So these, obviously these epistles were written in the, in probably in the 60s, 50s, sorry, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, etc. of um, in, in, in Russia. Uh, so it's close to our times. And he says quite clearly that the spiritual life in the last times is not the same as it was in ancient times. Now, I'm going to read to you about St. John, John the Faster. As you know, we have what's called the Rada, which is a book of canons. And there's another book which is called the Exumulitarium, which in English I think it's called a Manual of Confession. It's what the priests use to help them when they confess people. And in there's the canons, when they've done that sin, when they've done certain sins, etc., etc. So it tells them how to treat people. Okay, so St. Basil the Great and other holy fathers like St. Gregory of Nyssa and councils of the ancient times, they prescribed as a penance abstinence from holy communion, epitemia. That means that in those days, the way they used to penance people was to say to them, you're not allowed to commune if you've done certain sins. The, the more serious the sins, the greater the number of years. Sometimes the number of years were even 20 years they weren't allowed to commune. 
and for some sins, they weren't allowed to commune until they were dying on their deathbed. Christians of those times had such a desire to commune that they thought the worst possible thing that can happen to them is not to be allowed to commune. Of course, that's not how it is now, because people hardly commune anyway. Because remember, St. Basil, I think, would, uh, uh, he would advise his uh, spiritual children to, adv- uh, to commune um, four days a week. And I think St. John Chrysostom believed that people should commune every day. Such were the Christians of those times. For this reason, then, the Holy Fathers of those times had nothing better from which to deter, like to try and discourage or scare them from sinning and gave and said, look, if you do those sins, you're going to not be able to commune for those many years. However, St. John the Faster, who died in 619, described, sorry, decided to reduce the years of repentance for those who truly repentant and were willing to inflict hardships upon their body by means of severities and to live a virtuous life in the future. Now, some of you might think, and I've heard people say, oh, St. John the Faster he reduced the number of years, sometimes even three times. So if it was 20 years, he sometimes made them even five years. And people say, oh, it's, but he did that because people were slack. But that's not really correct. And I will, I'm going to go through some of those in a minute. Uh, St John the Faster said, the time can be reduced if a person's repentant and they're willing to do certain things to show their repentance. A penance usually consisted of Prayer, the spiritual father would say, okay, I want you to do these prayers. Fasting, extra fasting from what the church already has. Prostrations and almsgiving, given to the poor. And not to commune for a period of time. That's, the, that's what we will notice now when I read some canons of St. John, John the Faster, that he had as a penance. Prayers, fasting, prostrations, almsgiving and not to commune. And the purpose of a penance, some people like to call it a punishment, but the purpose of a penance penance was, I wrote six things down. One, to bring a person to a deeper repentance. When someone has sinned, they go to confession, it doesn't mean that they're fully repented. Sometimes it's just maybe more regret, maybe a little bit. But we are meant to repent, have deeper repentance. So by giving these things, it helped the person to come to a deeper repentance. Number two, helps the person to receive forgiveness. Or because the priest reads the prayer of absolution, the absolution depends on the person's repentance. So that's why, yes, the, per- the priest reads the prayer, but with these things that we're going to talk about, the person puts himself in a better state to receive the grace of God. Now, some people say, oh, God, uh, Christ's death on the cross has blotted out the sins. We have been given forgiveness. Nothing we can do can make up for that. It's free. That's what the Protestants say, and some Orthodox Protestants as well. But we, because of our sins and because of our pride and because of our passions, we are a lot of times we ourselves block the grace that God wants to give us for free. Yes, the grace that comes from the cross of Christ, the blood of Christ, can forgive sins. That's true. But we have to be in the correct state to receive that. 
and hence why we do farts and frustrations and all these things. Help us to become receptive to God's grace. So these things that the spiritual fathers give is to help us be in a better state to receive God's grace and forgiveness. Number three, to help the person not to sin again. So they go, oh, no, I don't want to sin again because if I do, I'm going to get these frustrations and all these penances. So it's like a deterrent. Number four, healing. These things heal the soul. Number five, to help the person change his life. By start, when, when the canon says, okay, I want you to do these many prayers, I want you to fast, do prostrations, etc., it helps that person to become more of a spiritual person and change their lives and become a, a spiritual being. And number six, obviously, all that for one reason only, for the salvation of the soul. Now, I read in the, in the confessional book, it says, because some people say, why does all this have to, as I said before, why do we have to do all this? But because we receive the forgiveness prayer. And, he, and the fathers say, yes, the sins of the sinner are forgiven, but under the presumption that he will keep his rule and not commune for the period of time given by the spiritual father. That's why proper confession, the spiritual father, before he reads the prayer, says, okay, you've done this sin, this is very serious sin, and this is what I want you to do. I want you to do this, this, and this. Do you agree? And if the person says yes, then he reads the prayer. If he doesn't agree, then the priest does not read the prayer. That's the strictest way. But, of course, we have deteriorated quite a lot lately, but we'll see more on that. And another point that I found, the sins are forgiven, yes, when, but not their consequence and chastisement, which, is assign, which the assigned rule and not communion for a period of time. I think I've mentioned this in another talk where I said sins are forgiven but the effect it has on our souls is still there and it needs healing. So when we've done some big sin and we go and go, yes, God will forgive if we're repentant, but it's marked our souls. See, as I said, I think I gave the example, if you, you, know, you put a really big cut in a, in a, a, we have a cut. Yes, it will heal, but there always will be a scar there. There always will be a problem because that was interfered with. That's the same as the soul. Yes, sins are forgiven, but, as he says here, the consequences of the sin are still there, and the punishment which that sin brings upon the person. Now, let's read this. For example, David, Prophet David, he sinned, as you know. He did two big sins, murder and adultery. And he was forgiven by God because Nathan, the prophet, said to him, the Lord has put away thy sin. In other words, you're forgiven. But, he's chast but he was still chastised. For after the forgiveness, he was cast out of his kingdom by his son and he suffered many other evils. By doing these fasts, prostrations and things like that, we are asking God to not to give us 
punishments, but to forgive us, yes, but also to spare us of that. And, we, and that's why the saints would often do these type of um, things, big fasts, whatever they did, they said, please forgive, 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 and, and spare us of the punishment to come. So, but I am going to do more on this in another talk. I just was just touched on it because it kind of helps us with the talk. To better understand what a penance is, we need to examine St. John the Baptist. Because remember, people used to come to him and they would confess their sins. And he would say, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. What does that mean? We've all read it. Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And blessed Theophilact, as you know from the books that we've got, the interpretations, and he, because I wouldn't know, if you asked me, for example, what does that mean, I wouldn't know. I would have to... That's why I read. I've got here what Blessed Theophilus says and what Saint Nikolai the Serbian says on that. Blessed Theophilus writes, Do you see what he's saying? One must not only flee from wickedness, but also bring forth fruits of virtue. Some people think, well, the main thing is we confess and we don't sin anymore. No. For it is written, turn away from evil and do good. Some people believe that the church is don't do evil. Hey, but wait a minute. How about, yes, don't do evil, but do good. That is, one must not only avoid evil, but must persistently make an effort to do good. For the doing of good is indeed the fruit and the offspring of repentance. To show that we are sorry, to prove that we are sorry, we have to do good. And that's why St. John the Baptist said, you know, did you still give back? Did, you know, you who are a soldier, don't intimidate people. He said, stop your evil. And then he would instruct them what good to do to make up for it. St. Nikolai writes, he does not take people at their word. Who doesn't take people at their word? St. John the Baptist does not take people at their word. Or because someone came and confessed their sins to him in the Jordan, it doesn't mean that he believed them. He goes on. Even when a man has sincerely confessed and sincerely shown his repentance for the sin committed, John does not readily believe him because he knows the weakness of human nature and the fact that human nature is unstable. In other words, that we can say today, I'm not going to do it again, and then five minutes later we can do it something else. Our human nature is changeable. We change continually. And hence people say, oh, from now I'm going to lose weight. From now I'm going to take care of my children. I'm not going to gamble anymore, whatever. And they don't change. At that time, they probably mean it. John knows this and strives with all his might to make it clear that penitents, that's those who are coming to confess, must prove their words with deeds. This is helping us now to understand what confession is. So yes, they came to the river, they confessed their sins to St. John the Baptist there, but he says this is not enough, you just can't say your sins. I want proof, St. John is saying. Because why? Because... Sin has, by long indulgence, become a habit. It's a passion. 
We can't stop. It's very difficult to stop. It's not enough to say, I'm never going to swear again. I'm never going to lie again. I'm never going to get angry again. It's a passion. Some people have had the passion in them for 20 years, 30 years, etc. It's become a habit. And now, acts of virtue must become also a habit. Now, acts of virtue must become a habit, and this can come about only by long exercise in the virtues. Just like it took us 15, 20 years to develop certain passions, the virtues will take also many years. And this is where these people are deceived. They come to the church and they go, oh, look, at the saints had humility. They were meek. They didn't get angry. I'm not going to get angry anymore. See, that's wrong. Passions don't stop like that. Because passions, as I said, have become a habit in us. And look at today, the world. What do we hear? We have people who can't stop eating. We have people with the smoking problems. Then we have alcoholic problems. Then we have gamblers. Then we have the ones with the sexual problems. And then we have um, the internet pornography and all that type of stuff as well. And we have compulsive things and OCD. And there's so many problems where uh, the world is just centred around and all this money going from the government for these mental health things, trying to solve all these passions, really they're passions. Of course, there are exceptions. Some mental illnesses come from birth and other, th- other reasons, which is not the fault of the person, obviously. We're talking about the ones who develop passions from young. So John, looking with suspicion... And I love this part, the way St. Nikolai writes it. John looks with suspicion on instant penitence. What's instant penitence? Those who all of a sudden say, I'm going to stop, I'm going to go confess, I'm going to stop my sins or whatever. That's instant like that. And he cries out to them, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. That's in other words, for us today. Don't just write to confession and we say, I've sinned. Read me the prayer. But we should bear fruits worthy of repentance. I'll give you two examples. St. John Damascus. Now, St. John was second in charge to the ruler who was an Arab. Even though he was Orthodox Christian, he was a government official. And later on, he, um, he was slandered, as you know, as some of you know, because he was writing a lot about the icons against the iconoclasts. Constantinople had no power over there because they were under the Arabs. And the emperors made some slanders up and said to the Arabs, he's planning to overthrow you and for us to come and things like that. And so the Arab leader there believed it and had his hand cut off. And then he prayed in front of the icon of the three hands, as we call it now. It's the icon on Talk 5, actually, that nice uh, icon which is in Hilanda Monastery, Serbian Monastery, Manathos. And he prayed and his hand was put back again and there was a line there where people... And when the Arabs saw that, they were amazed and saw the miracle. Anyway, he wanted to become a monk. He went to St. Saba's Monastery in the desert. And he was put under the guidance of a, of a spiritual father. And this spiritual father gave him instructions. You will do nothing without my permission. So St. John was obedient, even though he was the second in charge 
So that would be very hard for someone with power to be able to become a spiritual child of, of, a, of a monk in the, in the monastery. Anyway, one of the monks of the monastery, I think his brother died, and he was very upset and very, you know, a bit hopeless, whatever. And St. John felt sorry for him, so he wrote some hymns about the dead, which are the hymns that we use now in the funeral, a lot of them. Those funeral hymns that exist at Daniel Church, they were written by St. John Damascene. Anyway, his spiritual father found out that he had written them, even though it was a good thing, but still he did it without a blessing. And his spiritual father said, I don't want to see you anymore, I'm, you're not my spiritual child anymore, and got angry. And St. John was saying to him, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. He says, no, I don't want, I'm not going to forgive you, etc. Now, obviously you might say, how can a spiritual father do that? Whatever. I don't know, um, it might have been by providence, uh, maybe he lost himself the spiritual father. But the point is, he said, I don't forgive you. And the other fathers of the monastery were saying to the spiritual father, forgive him. Look, he's asking forgiveness because I will not forgive him. And they said, well, give him a penance. Give him an epithemia. Give him, that's what we're talking about now. Give him something. And then the elder said, I want him to clean out the toilets with his hands. In other words, I'm talking because, you know, those toilets... Some countries have still got them. They're not, they haven't got sewage systems. And um, the fathers said to themselves, he's not going to do it. This is, this is a horrible thing. How could the spiritual father give him such a difficult thing to prove his f repentance? So they thought he would leave because how can you know, the person who was once second in charge of the whole of the area there now go and dig out all from the toilets with his hand. And St. John was so repentant, and he, and he was repentant, that he went and he did it. When the spiritual father saw that, he broke down and he, and he said, truly I have a true child of obedience, or truly, you know, that he is a, a proper spiritual child. And he forgave him. That's one example. And the other example is like a married couple. Say the husband's a horrible person and doesn't take care of his wife, doesn't take care of the children, things like that. And he says, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But, you know, words are words, as St. John the Baptist said. He doesn't trust words. And the woman says, I don't believe you, I don't forgive you, I don't trust you. Right? You've said it so many times. It's just words. Have you heard that expression before? It's just words. But then if the, if, the, if the husband, over a period of time, stays home and helps and plays with the children and takes care and takes care of his wife, etc., etc., after so much of a period of time, his wife will be softened and say, yes, now I can see that his repentance is true. So that's why we have what's called fruits of repentance. Now, in the church... The spiritual fathers used to use fasting, prayer, prostrations and almsgiving as a way and not to commune for a period of time. Now, let's look at some examples of these uh, penances. Fornication, that's sex before marriage. The, old, the ancient church used to say seven to, some areas were different, but basically it was about seven years 
or even some places nine years, maybe even some a little bit more. St. John the Faster says, I'll make it two years, provided the person agrees to eat dry foods every day after the ninth hour, which means after Vespers, which is around three o'clock in the afternoon. So eat nothing all day. Uh, eat dry food. When I say dry, it means no oils and things like that. Uh, for two years and do 250 prostrations every day. So where people say St. John the Faster reduced the number of years not to commune because people weren't strong anymore. No, he was actually not reduced. He was actually saying that it's a serious thing, but I'm going to give a person the opportunity that if they really, really want to get back and commune and not be excommunicated in a sense, not be able to, to commune, then they can do that. Adultery breaking your marriage bonds. For example, some areas were seven years, no communion, some areas 15 years, some areas 18 years. But St. John the Faster says, I'll make it three years, but the person has to eat dry foods after the ninth hour and 250 prostrations daily for three years. C, homosexuality, for example. Back in those days, some places were 15 years, some 18 years. St. John says, I will give three years where the person has to weep and fast, eat and dry foods towards the evening, do 200 prostrations. If he's lazy, let him complete the whole 15 years as set out by the canons of the church. So remember, the topic about homosexuality, you've got to be very careful because it looks like there's just this emphasis just on them. And that's wrong um, for example, the American Idol show. They had, on one season, I think it was maybe last year, they had that uh, woman who's uh, openly confessed that she's a lesbian, the de uh, degenerate or something like that, and she was a judge. And what happened was that the Christians, because a lot of Protestant Christians watch that show in America, they said that because she's on there, they're not going to watch it, they're not going to vote. And that year, uh, they usually get, I don't know, they used to get about 100 million votes at the end, and this time they only got around 45 million votes, which showed that a lot of people said they're not going to vote because of her. You see, but that makes it look really bad. But how about, this is what I object to, because I agree with the complaint. Why? Because on those shows, they have everything sexual, references to drugs, Sex before marriage doesn't matter, adultery, songs, all that stuff, the things, satanic things. But those same Protestant Christians didn't say anything about that. So it's like the only sin in the world is homosexuality. See, people have lost themselves and don't even know what's serious, what's not. Obviously, the other sin is serious as well, but it's not the only sin. And that's why, not that I'm a follower of, um, what's his name, Billy Graham, once when I saw an interview with him, uh, he was having an interview with um, yeah, Larry King. Uh, he was trying to bait him and said to him, so um, homosexuals are going to go to hell, they're going to go to hell, are they? And he was trying to bait him to make him go against. And Larry King was saying to him, is it a sin? It's a sin, isn't it? Trying to make him say it. And Billy Graham, who's a Protestant person, but anyway, I thought his answer was quite wise. He said, uh, many things are sins. Many things are sins. Not just that. I think the Christians have, uh, or even the other Christians from there, they've lost themselves 
And I never say, I always, when I speak about sins, I'll talk about and abortion and fornication and adultery and homosexuality, etc. Now, voluntary murder. 27 years and some places in the, in the church, entire life, they weren't allowed. If they, someone killed someone voluntarily, they weren't allowed to commune to the end of their life or for 27 years. St John the Fast says, I'll make it five years. Fast all day, eat and dry foods in the evening and do 300 prostrations a day, even 100 more than what it was for homosexuality. Involuntary murder was, that's when you kill someone accidentally, Five years, some areas, seven, ten years. St. John says, I'll make it three years, fast all day, and do 300 prostrations daily, even though it was involuntary. However, it's still a sin. Abortion. Those are abortionists, those who do them, and those who have them done to themselves. Penanced in the same way as voluntary murderers. So, let's have a look. How was voluntary murderers penanced back in the old days? 27 years. So, someone who did an abortion in those days was made the, was given the same thing. They weren't allowed to commune for 27 years or their entire life. But St John the Fasser says, for those who have done abortions, five years, fast all day in dry foods, can eat in the evening, 300 prostrations daily. Perjury, that's when you go and lie in court. Back in those days, six to ten years. But St John the Fasser says, one year eating dry foods towards the evening, 250 prostrations a day those who go to magicians or those who, who are magicians. Same as voluntary murder. St. Gregory of Nyssa penances those who go to fortune tellers out of disregard for and rejection of the faith of Christ as those who have voluntarily denied Christ. And St. Gregory of Nyssa in his time said they weren't allowed to commune to the day that they died on their deathbed. So some, as I said, but in general... Those who went to sorcerers because they disregarded their faith, because they believed that Christ wasn't powerful, etc., those people were uh, penanced the same as those who murdered someone on purpose for 27 years, etc. But St. John says, five years, fast all day, eat towards the evening, 300 prostrations a day. Now, there are also those who went to sorcerers um, because of weakness, those who went to magicians because they became faint-hearted out of some necessity or pressure, out of weakness, were penanced like those who denied Christ on account of tortures and sufferings. In the, back when the people were being um, tortured, some people denied Christ um, because they couldn't take the tortures. And the church back in those days would say to them, okay, 11 years that they weren't allowed to commune. But St. John the Faster says three years eating dry foods in the, towards the evening and 250 prostrations a day. So there are people who, out of weakness, they lost themselves a bit and they can go to these places, but it's still a very big sin. Stealing. There are those who steal um, and then admit that they steal one year back in the old days, but St. John says 40 days fasting for 40 days. But if someone stole, but he didn't admit it, but was caught, then back in those days it was two years, and some Holy Fathers even longer, especially if there was a capital 
crime, something that was serious, not just a loaf of bread, but something big. St. John the Faster prescribed six months, no communion, drive throughs after the ninth hour and 100 prostrations. Miscarriage. A woman who has involuntarily miscarried a baby receives a penance of one year. The canons advise pregnant women not to lift anything heavy, especially in the last three months, and to keep themselves from whatever troubles them, not to get upset. Men should stay apart from their wives during that time, in other words, no sexual activity, no, nor strike them or cause them any trouble and sorrow whatsoever while they're pregnant, for because of these things, their wives miscarry the babies and the poor husbands become murderers of their children. If it is a married priest that did that, then he is to be defrocked. He can no longer be a priest. And if he is a layman, he can never become a priest because he once was involved in a murder even though it was a um, miscarriage. So see, we look at that and we um, have to understand the way the church, and there's some of you might say, oh, that's silly, that's that, but you know, be careful not to blaspheme because you don't want fire to fall on your head. These are, these are holy fathers, and a lot of these were in councils that were accepted by the whole church. It might not be, well, you, some people might say, but she miscarried, it was an accident or something like that. But if for the fathers to give a penance, which of course is not given that much now, or for, a far, for the fathers to give a penance, there's a reason for it. Vomiting after communion, 40 days, no communion. Read Psalm 50 and do 50 prostrations daily. Even if a person was not responsible for vomiting, yet on account of his other sins, it was allowed by God that this should happen to him. Other fathers give a more severe penance for those who ate and drank too much and a lighter penance for those who had an upset stomach or some illness, for this is due to divine abandonment, which means that even if it's not the person didn't do anything wrong, but he became sick without realising and vomited, the fathers of the church still say God left that person, abandoned him for a while for some sin that maybe they don't know. A person who gets seasick should not commune on the day of travel. Children that, children that vomit, again, um, the, a lot of times parents don't pray for them. They, don't, um, they take them to places like um, parks where they're running around and jumping around and things like that. Uh, you know, when a child looks like he's not very well, it's better for them not to commune. The parent has to be diligent, not only on themselves, but on their children as well. And also, just like you pray and you say, you know, God, let me to commune and let nothing happen to me that I vomit accidentally or something like that, we should pray like that. And we should also pray for our children the same thing, that they don't vomit. And so, under contemporary conditions of life, which are so far removed from God's commandments... The strictness of penances may be reduced. So, depending on the times we live in, now we're going to go on to our times more, the strictness of the penances can be reduced many times depending on how far away people are from God, how slack they've become. Metropolitan Anthony Kaporovitsky, a metropolitan of the Russian church, I think he was back in Russia before the revolution, but he also became the first head of the Russian church abroad, as I say, a very learned man and a very holy man. 
He writes something in his book called A Series of Lectures on the Mystery of Repentance, uh, which was first published in 1928. So let's look at how he looked at society back then, which is nearly, which is nearly about 80 years ago. According to canon law, he says, three quarters of those living in our times coming to confession are liable not just to strict penances, but to complete deprivation of Holy Communion for 10 or 20 years, or even to the time of their death. He actually says that in his time, that people have become so off that their sins, he says three quarters of the people coming, really strictly speaking, should not commune for 10 to 20 years or, or at the time of their death. That's, in other words, he's saying that they're doing serious sins. But in the same canon, he says, it is explained under what conditions the excommunication can be shortened as much as two to three times. However, it does not mention the most important condition, which did not exist when canon law was compiled. When the Holy Fathers put these canons together, it was different then to what it is now. And he's saying that the Holy Fathers didn't know, one can say, that this was going to happen in our times, which is, by this we mean the general sinfulness of the last two centuries and the consequence of this that it is beyond compare more difficult to struggle with sin than it was in the times of ancient piety. So when Metropolitan wrote this, that's true. The last couple of hundred years before the revolution, Russia had gone quite off. They were influenced a lot by the West, due to Peter the Great, Catherine I, put a lot of Western influence in. The church became pushed to the side. A lot of people lost their piety. And sin became had a, had a stronger hold on people. And he's saying that people could not struggle with sin the same as those in ancient times could. This piety, he's saying back in the old days, was universal and all the moral principles and customs of family and social life were subject to it. Back in the old days, society was connected with the church. All the holidays, the, the cycle of the church was connected with the empire, like in the Byzantine Empire. When it was Lent, for example, the first three days of Lent, everything was closed so people could go to church and they'd be in church nearly all day and that's why they could fast three days eating nothing. But today people go to work and try to apply three days not eating anything. A person who belongs to an old calendar's church, a fanatical person, poor thing, and he actually does those three days in Lent, he sometimes comes and delivers things to the monastery. So when he comes during those days, but especially in Holy Week, when there's a very strict fast in Holy Week before Pascha, he actually um, comes to deliver things and he looks like he's going to drop any moment. His eyes are bulging out, he can't speak, and he's trembling. And most of the time, he can't even go to church because he's sick. What, what's that? Back in the old days, Holy Week, no one worked. Understand the difference in the times that we live in. And in Greece, because it's still an Orthodox country, they still have like those a lot of days when they're not working and things like that. So he said there, and this is important, he goes, an example of how people were 
more pious and how things were easier is the fact that adolescence married at the very beginning of sexual maturity or even earlier than this, at the age of 15. Exceptions were only made for the, those youths and maidens who had, vow, who had made a vow of virginity. So, and some countries still do that. But in general, in the orthodox countries, people married young. St. John Christum says, if you notice your son or whatever is starting to have problems and he might fall, get him married early. Even if he hasn't finished his studies, etc., he said, get them married early, you support him and let him, like, because it's better for him to be married and have his wife rather than to stay single. That Today, people are getting married at 40. So that was the way of life. The mother of God was betrothed at 15 because back in those days, that's the age that girls got married. I remember when I went to my mother's village, that was only back in the 70s, and I remember uh, there was one girl there that she got married and she was 16, but another girl got married and she was around 14. But they didn't divorce, but I don't know. Anyway, that's, that's the way they used to do it back in those days. They were more mature. And because of that, there was less sexual sins. But today, like you've got people, like let's look at a man, um, how and he gets married at 35 and he's supposed to hold himself for all those many years. It just, everything's opposite. So it is difficult the times we live in and that's why the church has had to be lenient and be careful. And so he goes on. Under contemporary conditions of life, which are so far removed from God's commandments, because... For example, our society, society, is not based on God's commandments. So the strictness of penances has to be reduced many times, Metropolitan Anthony is saying. But it is regrettable that spiritual fathers no longer give penances at all, either because of their own neglect of confession, because they're slack, or else out of false sensitivity and weakness or shyness. So he actually is actually being a bit strict with the spiritual fathers. They shouldn't completely give nothing, either because they're slack or because they're weak and, and they're shy and they don't know how to, how to do it. Concerning the giving of a penance, such as prayers and prostrations, etc., we have to consider the weakness and laziness of contemporary Christians. It is better to carry out a small rule than to be given a long and not to carry. So he's saying you can't even keep the ones that St. John the Faster. How are you going to tell a Christian now today to do for three, for three years, 300 prostrations or 250 prostrations and eat after nine o'clock, uh, after the evening, etc. He goes, give something. Better to give something that can help the person. That's why spiritual fathers in Greece, uh, good spiritual fathers of Romania and other countries, they do tell people not to commune sometimes for one year. And it's therapeutic. But the Russian church, unfortunately, they have this practice... You know, I remember a priest saying to me once, today we had 80 people came for confession. And I said to him, and how many commune? 80. So that to me is, it's just, that's not real. Russia, before the revolution, had a, had a rule that the synod made that spiritual fathers cannot give penances. So these are quite, you know, that's a, a bit of a problem there. And so, first of all, people must not be admitted to communion if they do not declare their resolve to abandon mortal sin. So they've got a promise that they're not going to do it again. 
murderers, rob, robbers, rapists, abortionists, as well as doctors or other people who help them, sodomites, committers of bestiality, adulterers, seducers, etc. They should be deprived from communion, he's saying, for several years. But at least one year, he said. Some of them can be admitted to communion immediately only if they've committed such sins long ago and they repented a long time ago, but they were too embarrassed to come to confession. So when you go to Manathos, for example, and confess, they'll say, when did you last do that sin? You say, oh, two years ago, whatever, and they kind of count that as part of the uh, canon because at least the person stopped but just didn't get to confession. The spiritual father has the discretion to assign a penance in proportion to repentance. This is the spirit that is in the canons and to also consider the general state of the faithful and of the church at the time the most important thing says St John Chrysostom it's not the length of time but the amendment of soul the most important thing the spiritualists will look at is try to help the person to correct their life to stop the sin and change their life that's the important. If you can do that with 10 prostrations a day, if you can do that with all certain ways, that's the main thing. That should be the aim. Um, St. John was accused... Saint, actually, St. John the Chrys Chrysostom was very forgiving. He wasn't as strict as some of the other saints on communion. He used to be you know, a bit more lenient. And he was actually accused of being too lenient and too forgiving. That's St. John Chrysostom. So we have different areas. St. Basil the Great was very strict. St. John Chrysostom, why? St. John Chrysostom was patriarch of Constantinople. Constantinople was the capital of the empire. They had plenty of money, there was luxury, they had those races, the hippodromes, they had all these type of things. And uh, people were, had more availability to be slack and to, be, and to do sins. So he actually used different ways. But then if someone was in a different area where it was really strict and they never had these temptations, they could apply the canons in a more strict way. Actually, if you remember, Elder Porfirios, when he first, you know, when, you, when I did the life a few years ago, uh, where was it? It was, I uh, forgot the name of the talk. Uh, the, the Elder Porfirios as a spiritual father talk, 19, I'm not sure. He said there that um, when he first started confessing as a priest, he had, his, he had his book there of canons and he used to try to apply them to the people that came. And he noticed people wouldn't come again and there was all these problems and then he realised that you can't even apply the canons back in those days in Greece when he was confessing and he tried then to use other means, a, more, a different approach, trying to help. The main thing is to help the person stop sinning, not to sin anymore, and help the person to amend themselves, to actually... Start to lead a Christian life. That's the purpose of the canons. Okay, so the last section, then we'll have the break, which is a small section. When I ask someone what is orthodoxy, a lot of people say orthodoxy is prayer, fasting, no oils, people make sure they say they're no oils doing prostrations if they're Russians because Greeks, as I said before, they can't, they're not really into the prostrations as much in their churches because of the fact that they've got the, those pews there and if they try and do one, they hit their heads, as I've said before. But in the Russian church, it's open. Anyway, but people say prostrations, venerating icons, some say, standing in church and giving some money to the poor a bit. And basically, that's what orthodoxy is. And in the spiritual life, 
bodily and spiritual labor, labors are practiced in order to help us come close to God. Why do we do prostrations? Why do we fast? To help us come closer to God. In other words, this is what we call asceticism, ascesis. Some examples of bodily lab- labors include fasting, prostration, standing for long periods of time, which we know that the saints did, enduring heat and cold, you know, some of the saints would do that. Vigil is to stay awake a long time and pray and, and um, sleeping on a chair, like St John, Archbishop of Shanghai, he would never sleep in a bed. Some of them even slept on floors or hard surfaces. For example, St Sava Monastery um, in, the je- in the desert of uh, in Jun- there, Jerusalem. I've, I went there when I was a lay person many years ago and I stayed there a few days. It's in the desert, a very uh, uh, interesting experience. Anyway, and they said to me, um, okay, here's your room. So I went to, to the room, I was very tired, and I plopped myself on the bed and then he broke my back because it was a blanket on rock. So um, a bit of straw maybe. They are quite ascetical there. And that place there is open up to a lot of demonic warfare. So, oh, and some of them, like in Russia, for example, even some other things, they would wear hair shirts, and, and, and in the ancient Byzantine Empire, hair shirts were like, a, like, like singlets that were very uh, sharp, like, I don't know what they were, a like coarse type of material that would, be, that would um, cut into their skin, and some of them even wear, wore chains. These are all like what you call asceticism, like different things. Some examples of spiritual labours include prayer, struggling with sinful thoughts and desires, etc. That's what's called spiritual asceticism. So there's bodily and spiritual. Now, uh, how correct is this? To answer this, we need to um, look briefly at prayer. What I'm going to talk about tonight, after the break, is prayer, fasting, prostrations and almsgiving. And before I examine these four things, I would like to mention that people often criticise or can criticise, I've heard some people say, we had one here quite a few years ago, and they say, oh, that priest, he's not positive. Remember the positive one? And it's got too negative because it's always talking about deception and hypocrisy and vainglory and demons and passions and Phariseeism and it's all these negative things. So these people say we should speak about positive things. And so I'm going to say here, before I leave you to go is on the, for the break, is maybe they're right. So what I'm going to do is um, on the next part, I'm going to be reading all about those things and we'll see how the fathers spoke and we'll see how Christ himself, because I'm going to read from the, from the Gospels, how did the Father speak? How did God himself instruct? to see whether truly that I am being negative and are those people correct to say, no, we need to be positive because there's all this new positive thing now that's going around. The schools as well are all positive and yet kids still can't read and write but must be working, must be going really well. Even with calculators, they still can't even use the calculators. If you remember, I said to you when I had a year 11 class at a a girl that was very slow, she shouldn't have gone to year 11, but anyway, she wanted to get the HSC there. So we're doing some questions and 
she, I said to her, okay, so you, you, um, you've got something that's, um, you know, $5, and you bought a lolly that cost two cents, say, back in the old days, so then how much do you have left? She gets the calculator, five, take away two, $3. <laughs> There's the, that's positive, so that's positive education. Okay, they can have the break. Can I just clarify, with miscarriage, as I said, the canons, the epithemia, the penances, even today are not as much. Some priests might not even give any at all. Some might give 40 days. Some might give whatever. For a, and I did not say there that the miscarriage is the fault. I said the, the vomiting, uh, whether the person did it themselves or not, it could be some, from some secret sin. In the miscarriage, it doesn't say here that, it, that it's necessarily the fault of the woman each time. It even says here that it could be because of the husband, etc. So there are, of course, miscarriages that occur which are from physiological reasons. But for the church to give something like that, it gives it for a reason. Just like the, the um, you know, I don't know if you know this, but Metropolitan... Augustinus or, uh, of Florina died two years ago at about 105, 106, a great father of the Greek church there. Now, he had a rule. He did not allow any of his priests to drive in his diocese. So none of his priests were allowed to drive because if they hit someone and kill someone, they no longer can be a priest. So while other bishops in Greece would allow their, some of, like, probably all of them, would allow their priests to, to drive, I've got a licence, I won't drive, because anything can happen. And some priests, keep that, some priests keep that rule. You could hit someone accidentally. Now, the thing is, just like one person could say, well, if a woman has a miscarriage, then why is it her fault that she has to have a, a penance? It's the same thing as well, the priest is driving along, a child comes in front and accidentally kills a child, but he no longer can become a priest. He can no longer be a priest. And if he's a lay person, he cannot become a priest. These are the canons that have been inspired by God. Why? How? Is it really our business? The point is, that's the canons. I don't have any problems with it because whatever is inspired by God, whatever is given to us from the Holy Fathers, is, is correct. I don't have to understand it. But I bow down to it because that. Now, let's have some positive now because, as I said before, before the, the break, maybe I'm too negative. So that's why we should look at... Um, I'm going to read what Christ himself says in the Gospels about prayer. So that way I won't be accused of either being too positive or too negative let's see what he says and when you pray you shall not be like the hypocrites so pretty much he gets christ gets straight into it and is quite negative see and when you pray you shall not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be that they may be seen by men assuredly i say to you they have their reward but when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. 
and your Father who sees in secret reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, as the pagans do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Now that is interesting. And it will be interesting what he says, what Christ himself says about fasting. Some of you might already know because you read the Bible. What does he say about almsgiving? How does he start off his teaching about those things? Here, he says straight into it, don't be like the hypocrites. So when I do speak the way I speak, um, it's not to be looked at as negative, and you shall see why soon. Blessed Theophilact, because I now want to explain that little passage of what I just read. He calls those men hypocrites who pretend that they are looking to God when in fact they are looking to men. And from men they have received the only reward they will receive. So a hypocrite is someone who's pretending to be something that they're not. Should I not then pray in church? Because some people say, well, when you go to church you're praying in front of people. And Christ says, don't pray so people can see you. So therefore, people from that say, we shouldn't go to church, we should pray only at home in private. Because he says, but when you pray, go into your room. And hence why some groups, some Protestant groups, say, well, there's no point in having church. We do prayers at home in secret. So go, you know, this is how people misinterpret things and make up all these different things. They can always have another thing in their churches. They can have individual booths. So everyone stands in a booth with a curtain and that way they pray and no one can see them. And that way they can be true to the gospel which says, shut yourself into the room so no one can see you. So, should I not pray in church? Indeed, says Blessed Theophilus, I should, but with a right mind and not for show. Christ was not against public worship. He himself went into the synagogues and taught. He is against praying to, be, to, to show off. That's what he was against. For it is not the place which harms prayer, but the manner and the intent with which we pray. What's in us? Why are we doing it? For many who pray in secret do so to impress men. When we say men, we mean people. Now I put a little note here. Uh, the demons can praise someone so they can fall into pride even when they're praying privately at home. That's why a lot of the ascetics, when they were praying in the desert by themselves, were being hit with ferocious thoughts of pride and vainglory, even though there was no one there. So that's even stupid in itself. Because he says here... Uh, okay, well, I think it's the next part. Um, Blessed Theophilus continues... Vain repetitions. What does Christ mean when he says, don't pray with many words? Now, some put down the Orthodox and say, see, the Orthodox have long services and pray, 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 many words. Christ is against them. Therefore, the Orthodox worship is wrong. So let's see what Blessed Theophilus says. Va vain repetition, like babbling, babbling means praying foolishly as when someone asks for such worldly things as fame, wealth, or victory, like praying for silly things. Christ is against that. Actually, Christ does not condemn the use of many words, as it seems, but teaches that words must express the desire for communion with God. 
as we heard in talk 39 and talk 40, that when we pray, we concentrate on the words and feel the words. That's the aim, to feel what we're saying. What Christ means by vain repetitions or babbling, like blah, 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 just talk, it means that we are speaking words but don't feel the words that we are saying and thinking that we're praying and showing off at the same time to others that we are praying. Actually, Christ does not condemn the use of many words, as it seems, but teaches that words must express the desire for communion with God. Christ himself gives us specific words to repeat, where he says, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. He taught people to use that prayer. Well, what do you use it? Do you use it once in your lifetime? No. What does it mean? Give us this day our daily bread, which means we must say that prayer every day, sometimes even a few times a day. That's why we use that prayer when we eat. So therefore Christ is saying in one part of his, part of the, of his teaching, saying don't repeat things. And another part is saying I want you to repeat this prayer, our Father who art in the heavens. So it looks contradictory, but it's not. He's not therefore the church is not against repetition. Um, therefore it is not repetition itself that is condemned, but vain repetitions. Many psalms, prayers and hymns of the church have been repeated for countless generations in the worship of God in spirit and truth. We can repeat prayers. We repeat, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy. Even the Jews repeated their psalms, what they used to sing. The Orthodox Church repeats the prayers every day, the same things. However, not for just babbling where you're not feeling what you're saying, but it says here, as St. Theophilac says, in spirit and in truth. So I said there that that's what the Protestants misinterpret um, and, they, and what they do, some of them, is they went so off that they went against all formal prayers. Like the Anglicans, for example, they've still got what's called their, their service books, their prayer books, and they use those books. And some of them are similar to ours, their, uh, their prayers. High Church, Anglican especially. But the Protestants that moved away from that, they say, no, 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 Christ says, no, you shouldn't repeat things. So we don't use books because that means we're going to repeat the prayers all the time. So what they do is they use what's called spontaneous prayer, which the Waltons did as well. If, you re if some of you, when you were younger, watched that show, The Waltons, there they all sit around the prayer. It was never a fixed prayer. It was whatever came to the person's head. God bless this food, thank you, and thank you for this or that, whatever, and these other things. It's called what's called like a spontaneous prayer. And a lot of them, they do that. That's why those charismatics, when they speak in tongues and they go on, it's like they say, oh, it's how the Spirit moves them. So they don't like repetitive things. And they put the Orthodox Church down for that. Uh, but unfortunately, when someone allows themselves free and do not really know how to pray, because as I said in talk 39, that people have said to me, I can't pray in my own words. I go, that's good. That's, a good, that's good. That means you're not Protestant. 
what you do is you have to use the prayer book because the prayer books have prayers that were written by saints, that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's where we learn how to pray. And as time goes on, when we start that, when those words become part of our soul, then we can start to let go a little bit and we can at times pray. But remember, when we pray, we have a mixture of things. We do some written prayers, some prayer, Jesus' prayer, for example, a little bit, a few prostrations and a few prayers in your own words if it's coming naturally. Uh, but when we pray in our own words, we'll know what to say because we learnt them from the written which the saints have given us. These people have no written. So they just say whatever comes out and what happens with them is that after a while, blasphemies start coming out. That God is female and um, there's feminist theology that they've got and they've got other type of things which I don't even want to say because it makes me sick. Um, so let's go on. I've got a little example here. I remember a woman that used to go to church. She used to pray, which a lot of people do, but this person used to do it like for attention. She suffered from asthma and then, I don't know if she induced the asthma attack, but she used to get them and then make all problems during the services and she just liked, even though she was half dying, she still liked the attention that people looked at her, that she was having an asthma attack. It's just attention seeking. And these things are wrong. Now, this person got to the stage because whether she prayed privately, which happens to all of us, or whether she prayed in the church, she always wanted people to know, to look at her, to know. So even when she was pray, praying in her room, she would later on tell people, I prayed, I just finished my prayers, I prayed for an hour, I did this, I did that, etc., etc. The climax of her madness was that she actually said to me once, she was telling me a story that she met Elder Paisius when he came to Australia in 19, I think the beginning of the 80s. And she said that she was in a room and this is her words, she goes, he looked at me. I said, yes, what happened? And then he, he looked at me and I looked at him. I said, yep. And he knew he knew when he saw me. And I said, what did he know? Because he knew who I was. I said, what do you mean? Because he knew that I was spiritual, that I was a person of prayer, right? And I thought to myself that this is the self-righteousness of the Pharisee. And, you know, in the beginning of spiritual life, I've noticed I went through it, people go through it, you know, you've got this thing that for attention, but after a while, got to like grow out of it a bit, even though we still be tempted with vainglory in prayer, but at least to be aware of it and to fight it like the saints did, like to be aware that vainglory is bad and we shouldn't want people to know that we pray or, what, or how much we pray and what we do. Just keep it a secret. And in church, just act normal. No one can see you. Just go to a corner and that's it. Not have asthma attacks and do prostrations in front of everyone and do um, all these type of things. Elders of Optinus say, don't do anything which makes you stand out. Just be ordinary. So this woman, the poor thing, she actually thought that Elder Paisios uh, looked at her and with his clairvoyance knew that she was a spiritual person. Now, is that sad or is that not sad? Fasting. 
Let's see what Christ says about the fasting. Now, again, you know, we've got to be positive because people say that spirituality should be positive. So I won't speak because people are going to say, see, you'll be negative. So let's see what Christ says. Moreover, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, with a sad face. Again, Christ starts his teaching off with negative, which is, don't be like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, exactly the same as in prayer. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. This is all in chapter 6 of Matthew, on prayer, on fasting, and later on I think on almsgiving, maybe in the same one. Again, I won't say anything. Let's see what St. Nicholai says. The hypocrites are they who fast not for the sake of God, not for their own souls, but because of men, that men should see their fasting and praise them for it. That's the disease. So St. Nicholai begins. He, I got there, I'm looking at his writings and he gets into it straight away too. Why? Why all this? Why, are they, why does Christ, why do his saints all go towards the, this thing? Just speak positive and just say, fasting is good. Prostration is good. We'll see why soon. But as not all other men can take note every day what they eat and drink, they strive to make their faces show their fasting for others to read it there. In other words, because people don't know what you're doing at your house... They don't know that you're frying some air and eating it. They don't know that you are, you know, having some, like a little piece of stale bread. They don't know because they're not there. So what do you do? You, you make yourself skinny or look really weak, which most people would if they're having just air or just a bit of bread, and make sure that people read it on their face. This is what St Nicholas is saying. And when you, say, when you go up to someone and, as you say, you're half dead and you say, what's wrong? They go, oh, I'm fasting. So to make sure that everyone knows. They disfigure their... You can always put it on YouTube. What you can do is you can have a video. You can have a video in your house of you having a crust of bread with a glass of air. And then you um, post it on the web on the YouTubes and say, a great faster. <laughs> that way everyone can see it and that way you don't have to go out and go to the trouble of people, you know, um, acting weak or being weak, whatever. So he says, they disfigure their faces, making them appear pale and sad, very thin and absorbed. And people look at them and marvel and praise them. People reward them by their wonder. Wow, they say, look at him, he's a great faster. I never get those compliments. People, people give them the price of their fasting by their praise. What more can they expect from God? They have not been fasting for God's sake, but for man's. What sort of payment can they look for for their souls? Look to for their souls. They have not been fasting for their soul's sake. 
They have been fasting for man's sake, and men have praised them for this. They have indeed received their reward, and God owes them nothing. Nor will he give them anything for their fasting in the life to come. No reward. When we fast for attention, when we fast to show off, when we pray to f- for that, when we pray to show off, there is no reward in this life nor in the next. Your reward is already given from the praise of people. When you fast, you do so for the sake of God and for the salvation of your soul, not for men. It is not in the least important that men see and know that you are fasting. Indeed, says St. Nikolai, it's better if they don't know at all what you're doing. It is important that God sees and knows. I remember reading back in my younger years, never open up your virtues or anything to people. Once you do, you lose it. Some of you have already read that in the Fathers. Don't say what you do. As soon as you do it, it's gone. That's happened to me. Slip a bit, you might say something and say, oh, you know, I did this and that. Then all of a sudden I notice, gone. Once I'll confess something. Once I remember there was a particular petition that when I would serve, there's a particular petition which I really, really liked. And I can't remember if I said it to, maybe I said it to someone or maybe I just got proud of it, whatever. But ever since then, I can never, ever feel that petition. It's one of the ones I just cannot feel when I'm trying to do the services. See, that's what happens. When we get, like some people say to me, I prayed to help me take care of my children and it went really well. I've been going really well for the whole week, two weeks. It's just a miracle, like the children are quiet, they're listening to me, etc., etc. It's okay to say to the um, priest, if it's for guidance or help. But when you go around and say, oh, today I prayed and today I did this and this and that, and later on, what happens? The children become out of control and nothing goes right. See, don't open up your virtues only to the spiritual father and there you're opening up just to check just in case there's some you know, deception or some problem there just to make sure. The hypocrites fasted only in the body and showed this fasting to men by bodily means. In contrast to this, Christ puts interior fasting as the first place. See, people don't know that today. All they know is no oils. Oils aren't oils. But this is the thing, that that of the soul but says, but Christ puts interior fasting in first place. What's interior fasting? That of the soul, and then he puts bodily fasting after that. Not in order to undervalue bodily fasting, He's not saying bodily fasting is not important, like fasting from food. He says, yes, it's important because he himself fasted for 40 days, as we know. But he says, but we should start at the beginning of what is the truth. First is to cleanse the soul, then the body. A man must first strive to make fasting his own in his mind, heart and will. Fasting in our minds, in our hearts, in our will. Not to do something we shouldn't do, not to think something we shouldn't think, and not to feel things or whatever, desire something that we shouldn't. That is what a man must first strive to make fasting his own in mind, heart and will, 
and then fulfill it willingly and joyfully in his body, then the body, the food. Today, in the Orthodox Church, it's purely, as I said, food. Just the food part. People understand fasting as the food. And I try to explain to them, they don't listen. Um, and it just goes on to discussions. Um, today is oil, no, how about, uh, is wine allowed? Um, prawns, no, that can't have prawns today, can't have this, can't have, it's just all the time to do with that, the topic of the conversation during the fast. So are we allowed prawns? Are we allowed fish? I said to him, look, for you, just stick to the bread and the air. You'll be safe. So we say, this is the fasting that leads to salvation. This is the fast that Christ recommends, a fast free of hypocrisy, a fast that drives out evil spirits and brings man a glorious victory and many fruits, both in this life and in the life to come. See, now comes the positive. This is the proper fasting. It drives out evil spirits and brings many fruits, both in this life and in the life to come. When a man realises the grace that comes through fasting, he desires to fast more and more. And the graces that come through fasting are countless. There's so much benefit that people get from fasting. By fasting, a man lightens both his body and his spirit. His body becomes light, and not necessarily that doesn't mean just physical weight, because Elder Leonard was actually, he was the one that brought into Russia eldership. He was the one, he was the true first optimate elder. He was overweight, but yet he was the holy so it does not necessarily means lights of course some some people uh, most people become thin when they fast but in general that's not always a rule because there's all different things that go with it to do with insulins and sugars his body becomes light and vigorous strong and his spirit bright and clear fasting makes a man strong decisive and courageous fasting also makes a man generous meek merciful and obedient and saint basil the great says fasting strengthens the mind i mean even religions that aren't the other or other other religions they know that jews fast muslims fast um hindus fast and they say you know helps the mind it clears up etc they do get some little bit of benefit there but not of course as an orthodox fast because we know that fasting is not just food Orthodox Study Bible, which is the Bible I recommend for, for people to buy, it says in there, in this section, a little explanation, because they've got the some little explanations, which they mostly get from the fathers, obviously. Fasting also is not merely abstinence from food, but consists of self-denial in all areas of life in order to escape the control of the passions. And on the eve of Great Lent, we sing. So just as Great Lent's coming up, the services of the church which are preparing the Christians for Great Lent, they sing the following. Let us abstain from passions as we abstain from food. So the fathers wrote in those truparia, let us abstain, let us stop the, let us fight the passions and the food. Not, obviously not just one. Um, St John Christum says, what good is it if we abstain from eating poultry, fish, etc.? but bite and devour our brothers. And what does he mean by devour our brothers? Well, what's the point in fasting if we judge, we hate, we're jealous of them, we take revenge, 
We envy them, we slander them, we ignore them, we don't help them, we don't pray for them. In general, we don't care about them or, their, or, or for their salvation. He goes, what's the point in fasting, St. John Chrysostom says. St. Isaiah the recluse says lived, he lived in Egypt during the 5th and 6th centuries, back in those days where they really fasted and prayed, etc. He said, prayer and asceticism, so prayer, spiritual, asceticism, prostrations, fasting, etc., are useless to a man who conceals within himself malice towards his neighbour and the desire for revenge. St. Innocent, who enlightened the, there, we went to Alaska, I think the islands there, he became metropolitan of Moscow later. St. Innocent, in his book, Indication of the Way into the Kingdom of Heaven, which I think is in... Can I have that book? Is that book here? That book... Uh, is a very, very practical book. It's only small. Because I haven't had any recommendations today of books. Well, this is one, um, St. Innocent, Indication of the Way into the Kingdom of Heaven. A bishop, yeah, he was then, yeah. So this book is very, very practical and speaks about all... Anyway, I'm going to pick something from what he wrote. He said... Fasting, Jordanville produces that book, Holy Trinity Monastery. Fasting varies greatly. For a person brought up in luxury, fasting can be one thing, while for a person brought up in a simple and rough conditions, it's another thing. Therefore, for one person, it is nothing to use like roughest foods and to be healthy and still be healthy or to live without food for a number of days. And I want to say here, like back in the old days, when people used to go to monasteries, a lot of them were from villages. Some people were from, from, were from the villages. And they were already used to not eating much. Actually, I remember reading the lives of saints in Russia that uh, some people actually went to the monasteries because they had better food. They had, they had some food while in their villages they were hungry. So some people became monastics just so they can be able to eat. But nevertheless, the point is that they were used to not eating much in the village. They went to, and they also were used to hard labour, taking care of fields and animals. Then they go to the monastery, which is centred quite a lot on agricultural things. The same thing. They were used to fasting, uh, and they were used to that rough type of life, taking care of the animals, digging things like that. So it wasn't. That's what Saint Innocent saying. If you're brought up like that, it's easy. But if you're brought up in luxury, or if you're brought up like we are today where you can go and buy whatever you want and there's plenty of food and things like that, then it's more difficult. So whereas for another person, like the one that's brought up with plenty of food, a big change of food can be very noticeable and even harmful. But for everyone in general, fasting is primarily... What's this? Now let's see what he says. The main purpose of fasting is self-control and strict moderation in the use of food. So first he says the one about the spiritual fasting and then strict moderation in the use of food. Consequently, you should use food in moderation and try especially to bridle the desires of the body, the passions, and not satisfy its lusts at all. And lust does not mean just sexual, lust can be hate and all that, everything else. For they are unnecessary for the preservation of health and the continuation of life, and then your fast will be true. Now, Christ is in our midst, 
That's another book which I've recommended. Uh, Letters from another elder that lived in Russia. Uh, I think he died a few years before this. I don't know, 56, I'm not sure. You must finally recognise, he's writing to a person and says, you must finally recognise that you are living in the world and you are not a nun. See, even those times they had trouble. If you are struggling as you should, do not be proud of your fasting. If you get proud about it, what use is the fast? It is better for a person to eat meat than to be arrogant and exalt himself. I think what happened here is this woman wrote to him, who wasn't a nun, and said, I'm not going to eat meat anymore. So she took on a podvig, an, an extra one. Not just the fasts of the church, but she wanted to go higher than that. She wanted to also stop meat altogether. And he says, you're not a nun. And you're obviously proud about it, so why do it? What's the point? If you're going to be proud, what's the point in fasting? It's just better than to eat meat and just be normal. Don't do things which open us up to pride. This is what people aren't aware of today. They think that oh, everything we do, as long as it's spiritual, it's good. But it's not always good. Elder Macarius of Optinus says to another person, you also write that you have long ago stopped eating meat. Another one. Since in your case, there is one more, I love the way he says it, since in your case, this is one more occasion for pride, it's not good. See how all the elders spoke? The saints would always look at what do you want to do? You want to stop eating meat. Mm, this is gonna. This could make you fall into pride. What do you want to do? You want to do more prostrations. This can make you fall into pride. They're always careful. They don't. They're not impressed. As soon as someone says, "I'm doing this," they don't become impressed. Oh, that's great. Even though some priests do that in ignorance. When as soon as someone comes to me and says, "I'm doing this," I straight away I become a bit concerned. <laughs> And I say, let's look at it and examine it, etc. And I try to bring to their attention that uh, what they're doing, they're doing out of pride and therefore it is going to destroy them. Since in your case this is one more occasion for pride, it is not good. Read in the life of St. John Climacus how he always ate, if only a little, all the food permitted by the monastic rule grind in a way thereby at the passion of self-importance. That's an excellent example. He's trying to say, St John of the Latter, who was also a hermit for many, many years, when he was living in the monastery, he was a great faster. So he did not allow himself to not go to the trapeza, as we say, to the dining area, to eat with the monks, nor did he say, I'm not going to eat eggs, I'm not going to eat fish. What he would do is he would eat what everyone else ate, but a little bit, but still ate. So as, and he says, he why? To grind away the passion of self-importance so that he himself does not fall into pride because all the other monks were eating what they were set before them and he was sitting there or not going or sitting there and eating nothing. So he says he just ate a little bit at least so that he does not fall into pride. And this person was an ascetic that was in the desert there for decades. I advise you to eat meat whenever your family and all God-fearing men do. That is on any day except Wednesdays and Fridays and the days which are appointed by the church for fasting. Eat with moderation, of course, gratefully praising our Lord and his abundant gifts for his abundant gifts. Uh, and this, this part, 
Avoid making idols either of things or of practices. Do you know what that means? People make idols of people, for example, or of things, like a man might, his idol might be his car. A woman, the idol might be herself. Or someone else's idol could be a practice in the church. Some people have as an idol the fact that they can stand in church right through the whole service. Some people have an idol, not that it's not good to do that, but when it becomes an obsession, an idol. Some people have an idol of themselves of a practice, like the fact that they can do no oils, the fact that they read this or that. So St. Macarius of Optin is saying, don't make things an idol. Don't make it an obsession. It's not good. Another example is of a person who I used to know years ago and she uh, basically kept the fast of the church, the Lent, etc. But yet she had just one problem. She had had what I called a deadly passion that she didn't want to be corrected. She couldn't admit her faults. She could never say she was wrong. And she would fight and fight. And even if when all her friends would say, but you did it wrong. She wouldn't, she wouldn't budge. So she refused to do something about that passion. doesn't mean she's going to get victory over it. She probably will fall. But at least to say, I fell again. Forgive me. I'm sorry. Yes, I did do that wrong. No, this person wouldn't do that. And I said to her, why are you uh, fasting? Because, plus she had no repentance at all for that particular passion. And I said, what's the point in fasting? All you're doing is you're kind of making yourself, you feel that you're doing something for God, that you're, doing, that you're still a good Christian. I said, the fact that you cannot even admit your fault, that you can't repent of your passion, I'm not asking her to stop it because it might be hard. She might have had that from young. We've all got passions that we can't stop. That's not the point. The point is to struggle and at least to be humbled from the fact that, look, this is so strong. Like, for example, a man might be married and he's got a very bad temper, which he developed maybe from young. He's got a bad temper, so he tells his wife off continually or vice versa. But let's, because the women do it too. But let's just pick the man because he won't, I want you to think that I'm um, anti-feminist or something. So let's do the man now. So we go to the man and say that he's always angry, angry, angry. It's a passion. He can't stop. It's very hard. But he makes attempts, as Elder Paisio said. You know, he tries to hold himself. Then he lets go again and he falls again. And he says, I can't believe it. I fell again. Forgive me or whatever. See, that's different. That person's struggling. He's humble. He's admitting the fault. Not like Oprah says, the prophetess, where she says that, once a man raises his voice, that's it. Once he lifts his hands up, it will happen again. The woman has to leave. But the women which use frying pans on their husbands, and that's not a joke, and the women who hit and provoke and do things, even provoke and she says, no, nope, there's no excuse. It doesn't matter if the woman gets in your face and you know a man is never allowed to strike. But she never says about the women who strike. I saw something once, uh, some documentary of a man who was a policeman. He was a policeman, big fellow, and his wife would bash him. 
and he never hit her back, but she used to bash him with objects. He had bruises all over him, and he was a policeman, and he kept it a secret. Up close to where I used to live years ago, I remember a woman that, and she taught her kids, I've told you before, that she even taught her kids that when the husband was driving, if he made a mistake, she would hit him on the head. Two kids at the back, they would hit him on the head as well. And it was hard too. She was an abuser, but of course, in Oprah's philosophy of life, that doesn't matter. So there are passions. And that's not, in this case of this woman, what I'm telling you about is the fact that she didn't even make an attempt. She wasn't repentant. She couldn't even admit her mistakes. And I said to her, anyway, I think later on she stopped fasting. I said, better for you to stop fasting. Don't be, a, don't be a, like a Pharisee and think that God is pleased with you. As long as you're not fighting your passions, forget it. Not succeeding, because some priest might even say or someone else might say, he's saying that we have to be perfect before we fast. Did I say that? No, I said we have to be struggling. Even if you don't succeed in the struggle, God will accept what? Our repentance. Elder Paisio says, those who try fasting, vigils, and so on, prostrations, etc., but do so without getting rid of their egoism, end up making all this effort without spiritual benefit because they are punching the air and not the demons. Because obviously these ascetical practices are meant for us to gain grace and to be able to fight the demons. And he said, if a person's got egoism, which we all have, but what egoism he means, when a person's not struggling with it, doesn't care about it, he says it's, 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 all, it's all for nothing. He goes, you might think that you're fasting and prostrations, that you're actually beating the demons, like punching them through the, through the fasting. He goes, but you're not. All you're doing is you're punching the air. Nothing's happening. Instead of chasing away temptation they end up becoming receptive to them and naturally they encounter a lot of difficulty in their struggle and feel oppressed by anxiety. In other words, he's saying that a person who has egoism and is fasting and praying and thinks that they're good becomes receptive to the demons. In other words, they permit the demons to gain more and more control over them. Like a telephone is receptive. You say, oh, I've got good reception. I can pick up the signal, I can hear you. That's the same as a person, an egotist, who pra- prays and fasts, etc., etc., and doesn't do anything about his egoism, becomes receptive to the demons. The demons have better uh, communion with them. But those who strive greatly with humility and great trust in God rejoice in their heart and their soul soars. So my conclusion here is there is no point for one to fast, do prostrations, etc., and pray if these holy practices lead to Phariseeism, which is the cause for the hardening of the heart. The Pharisees, as you know, had a hard heart. doesn't matter all the miracles that Christ did. didn't do anything. didn't move them. They were so hard of heart. Phariseeism leads its followers to become deceived. God-haters, heretics, God-murderers. The Pharisees were called God-murderers. They were the ones who pushed for Christ to be crucified. They crucified Christ, who was God and man. That's why the, it's a better word, 
Felton in Greek, but in English are like God murderers. Deicide, that's the one. Another thing is that Arius, who was a great heretic of the church, that he denied the divinity of Christ, was an ascetic. And I read in the history there that he was actually a very impressive person. He was actually quite impressive to look at. He was ascetical. He was intelligent. Women were quite moved by him. I think it must have been that he was good-looking, perhaps, and that he was, he was a priest of uh, the Church of Alexandria, and he was a faster. He was an ascetic. And yet, from his asceticism, he became one of the worst heretics that the Church has seen. Many who became heretics of the church were men of prayer and they were, a lot of them were fasters and ascetics. Read the history of the church and see that, uh, that's why we call about that type 1, type 2 deception that I did last month and the month before, that those people there who became proud and who started to think that their experiences were from God, then they become closer with the demons. They block grace off. And they become darkened to such a point that then later on the devil leads them into heresy, etc. So many of the great heresiarchs, those who made up heresies, were ascetics. If you remember, Father Seraphim says, when a person desires and strives for the enjoyment of holy and divine feelings, but is not spiritually suitable, they're not really able to do that, and they mistake joy and peace and sweetness and love and kindness, zeal and boldness and power and all these things, they think it's from grace. And he said that, this type of deception, the person is satisfied with counterfeit feelings, fake, they're not real. And they believe that that's from God's grace. And they constantly invent false spiritual states. And these people can be actually taken as being holy. People don't pick it up. They think that their peace comes from the grace of God, but their peace comes from the demons. And, he says here, they become so deceived that they virtually, they are what's called, virtually commit spiritual suicide because he blinds himself to his own true spiritual state. One who thinks he is filled with grace will never receive grace. So one who thinks that their fasting is bringing grace into them or their prostrations or their prayer, but they've got no humility and other things we we'll talk about later, he who believes that, that he possesses the gifts of grace fences off from himself the entrance into himself of divine grace. Once the person thinks that, then they, it's like they put a fence around their heart and it does not allow the grace of God to come into that heart of the person. And it says here that opens wide the door to the infection of sin and to the demons. And that's what a lot of heretics were. And today, 
in the Orthodox Church. We have uh, many who are deceived, but also a lot of the really serious ecumenists are possessed. Does that mean we run away from the church? Well, we have to read the history of the church to see how did the saints deal with the heretics of their time. But the point is that when people come along and say that the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church are like two lungs, you need the left lung and you need the right lung to breathe together. And that's the same, that one side is the Orthodox Church and one side is the Catholic Church and the lungs together function as the church. In other words, that the Orthodox Church cannot function without the Roman Catholic Church. Now, those people who teach those things are possessed. Now, today in Vespers, we had the beautiful service of the miracle at the Fourth Ecumenical Council. And I wanted to send you a little, art, a little description of the feast. But anyway, so what happened there just quickly is that the Orthodox, that in the church, there was what's called the monophysites who believed that Christ only had one nature, that he was just God. He wasn't human as well. The Orthodox said, no, he's both human and he's human and divine. The reason why the Monophysites went to that, it was a way to combat the other heresy that was around that time, which was Arianism that said that Christ was only man. So they said, we don't say that Christ is only man, that's a heresy. And we say that Christ is just divine, just God. They went too far that way and they became heretics, but the Orthodox believed that Christ is both God and man. Anyway, they were complaining there at the council and the, one of the patriarchs there said, why don't we do the following? We have the relics of St. Ephemia here. Why don't we open up her coffin there where she was incorrupt and we'll put in her um, arms the two definitions of faith, the heretical one, the monophysite one, and in the other one, the orthodox. We'll close the coffin, I think it was three days, each one had a key so they couldn't open it up and do anything, so the orthodox had one key and the heretics had the other key, uh, the monophysites there, which are the modern, like a lot of, anyway, the, um, there are monophysites today. Uh, maybe not to the same level, but they're still monophysites. The church does not recognise them. The Coptics and things, they're not... Or because they're called orthodox, it doesn't mean that they're orthodox. They might be pious and things like that, but they're not orthodox because they do not recognise the fourth ecumenical council or the fifth or the sixth or the seventh. But anyway, so they prayed for three days and as the service, as you heard it tonight, they opened up the coffin and what did they find? They found that the orthodox definition that Christ is both God and man, has two natures, was in her arms, in St. Ephemia's arms. While the heretical definition, the heretical teaching that Christ is only God, was at her feet. She was stepping on it where it belonged. And from that, and as well the theological debate, etc., the Fourth Ecumenical Council um, came to the decision that Christ is both God and man. These, uh, and those who didn't believe in that were expelled from the church and that's where the church of Egypt and some other areas, but the church there, a lot of them left the church because they wouldn't accept. Now we have the people 
who are receptive to, as I said before, to certain uh, entities, who come along and say that the fourth ecumenical council was a mistake because the Egyptians in those times couldn't communicate with the Greeks because the Byzantine Empire were Greek. They were part of the Byzantine Empire, but they spoke Egyptian and or whatever, Coptic language, whatever they spoke down there. And then uh, because of the difficulty in communication, a mistake occurred. In reality, they believe exactly what we believe. And that the Fourth Ecumenical Council was wrong. It was a mistake. And the Fifth must have been wrong because the Fifth actually said the Fourth was correct and the Sixth must be wrong because the Sixth actually confirmed all the rest. And they say, no, 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 it's wrong and the Coptics are going to join with us soon. They don't believe in the same heresy as then. If they don't believe in, this, in that heresy, then why still, after so many decades of dialogue, how come they actually refuse to accept the fourth ecumenical council? They refuse. And the fifth and the sixth and the seventh. Because they are still heretical in their teaching. See how the blasphemy occurs? And so we have these, these um, even though Manathos, they wrote epistles, etc., and very good spiritual fathers and theologians, etc., they wrote and said, no, this is wrong. There was no mistake. The Holy Spirit does not make mistakes. That's blasphemy. So can you see what it says here? that those who have Pharisaism, in this case a lot of these ecumenists, they don't really even pray and fast. They've got another one, which is the intellectual, which St John of the Latter says in his um, writings there, at the beginning some of the unclean demons instruct us in the interpretation of the divine scriptures correctly. So I've said this before, that the demons can actually teach someone the correct faith. You know, they can speak in an orthodox manner. And they are particularly fond, the demons like doing this, especially with those who are vainglorious and those who have been educated in secular studies so that by gradually deceiving them, they lead them into heresy and blasphemy. These modern-day hierarchs are quite educated. They've got many degrees and theological degrees, but in universities, how can you learn theology in universities beyond me? And they became proud and they have fallen into one of the worst things to actually say that an ecumenical council is wrong. So don't, these ones, they don't pray and fast. I don't think they even do prostrations. It's too backward for them. They're just their mind. Their PhDs, theology, and from that they've actually come where they have lost themselves to such a degree that they blaspheme and try and say that the ecumenical council was wrong. So this is what I'm saying. But anyway, there's, there's, so there's all different ways. When you've got someone who fasts and prays and has spiritual feelings, they're dangerous. They can become heretics and blasphemers, etc. Then you've got the intellectual ones, a lot of the ones that come out of the theological schools. Look, there's some that come out of theological schools that are actually spiritual. 
I'm not putting down completely. I'm just saying that when they just base their, their you know, to become a bishop today, you must have a theology degree. It's like that's the most important thing. Anyway, so you got them. That's another group. Then you get what's called the double banger. When they're really bad is when they got the two. You got they pray, they fast, etc. They got that experience, and they're and they're intelligent and have a lot of knowledge. That one there is TNT, as they say. That there is extremely dangerous. Those type, because the ones that are intellectual, they don't even look spiritual. Because you know, usually they look. They, these people look quite spiritual, ascetical, and this and that. So when you've got the ascetical look, like Arius, and you've got the mind as well, and the education, put that together they're very dangerous. And that's what's happening today in the church. Does that mean we run away? Like a lot of people will say, you've got to run, you've got to run, etc. That's not. But we'll come to more about that later. That's not the, uh, necessarily the answer. Two monks were told to fast for 40 days. One of them could fast for 40 days with some difficulty, while the other one, after a couple of days, was on the ground, rolling around, starving and suffering. After a couple of days. This, and then... Though the suffering monk's fasting of only a few days was considered equal to the one who fasted for 40 days, that means that someone who finds it difficult to fast will be required to fast in the... Is, sorry, does that mean that one who can't fast has to, be, has to fast until he's dead? So it's different. Some people can fast easily or with some difficulty and some after one or two, three days find it difficult. But in God's eyes, both were the same. The three days was the same as the 40 because of the difficulty and that even the three days that he did was so hard that he probably would put more, he probably would put more effort into it than the one who did 40 days. So God doesn't look. We're not, God's not, this is not like the teaching system with marks. As I said before, in the school, teachers can only give points for the work. Okay, You give a test. You get 100, you get 90, you get 80. That's it. A person can't get 10 and then say to the person, excellent. But God does not look at it in the same way. God looks at effort. If the person who got 10 put in so much effort to achieve that and more effort even or the same effort as someone who got 90 or 95, in God's eyes, they could be the same, or this person could even be greater if he's put more effort into it. God looks at the disposition. God looks at the effort, not at the result. Got to get that mentality out of us to think like that. And that's why the fathers say, on the last day, we will be surprised who will be saved and who won't. Elder Ephraim of Katunakia, which is a book that we got there at the back, he lived, I think he died in the 80s. The elder explained that very long ago, about 100 monks came from Palestine and Egypt because they were expelled by the Arabs. It might have been 100 years, I don't know, I don't know that history much. And they settled at Katunakia, which is in the southern part of Mount Athos, which is what's called the desert. It's not like beautiful, luscious like the other parts of Mount Athos. It's quite desert, it's um, rock, harsh, difficult to live there. Some of them at what's called Karulia, which is another area, they used to live up in, in caves up in the mountain, and the only way you can get up to there was through chains, climbing up. So these were quite a ascetical type of um, thing. Anyway, these hundred monks came because they were thrown out of Egypt where they were living in the desert, 
and in Palestine where they were living in the desert. And they came from a dry climate and lived only in those in their countries on bread, water and salt. That's how they lived. Because they ate very little in their previous countries, they wanted to continue the same diet at, Mount, uh, at the Holy Mountain. But they couldn't endure. Because in Mount Athos is not like the desert, even in that area which is called the desert, because it's wet, it has wet climate, cold winds. It's very harsh, very difficult compared to how they lived in the desert. It's what we call, it's got a heavy, Greeks call it a heavy climate. Very difficult. And as doctors will tell you as well, that some people that have got asthma, some people that have got certain symptoms, the climate, sometimes they say, look, you, this climate is not for you. You have to go to a more uh, dry climate or something like that. Is that correct? That some climate is um, wet and it does, I think it's no good for asthma, for asthmatics, or different sicknesses. So these people were used to that. And in their countries, they had bread, water, and salt. In Manathos, they don't fast like that, just so you know. Manathos, very rare, like Elder Joseph, I think, was a very strict faster. But in general, they would eat oil on the days and wine and cheese and eggs and fish. They don't eat meat. Because of that climate, they could not fast the same way. What happened to the other hundred who continued to fast in the way that they did when they were in Egypt and Palestine? They kept on fasting the same way. Bread, water and salt. They all died. After two or three years, all of them died. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So everyone, it's different. Some people say, oh, the Ru some Greeks, for example, they say, oh, the Russians, they've got on their calendar oil when the Greeks have no oil, or wine when the Greeks have no wine, or they have fish uh, during certain lengths, and this and that, and they just go on and on and on. And they said, well, why are the Russians like that? And I said, well, if you lived up in Siberia, <laughs> right, we'll see if you can last on a bit of bread, okay? So uh, the different climate. Uh, Siberia is very, very cold. They had to have fat from the, uh, what they, what, like, whatever they had up there, like the, the fish and things like that. So therefore they were, they were, and wine as well, as you know. Without the vodka, there's no life, <laughs> right? So um, it keeps you warm. Now, we don't know. We haven't been there. But to get a little bit of a feeling about it, I'll tell you how to get a little bit of an experience of what it's like. You go down where we've got snow. What is it, Mount Kosciuszko? Is that where the snow is? Down there, the snow mountains. And go down in your bathing suits. Sit there in the, in the um, cold for about a day. Oh, no, not a day. You won't come back. Um, maybe about half an hour to get an experience of what it would be like to live there. Okay. So that's why it's different for different things. doesn't mean they're heretics. doesn't mean they're slack. It's different. Like these poor monks. They thought they could still eat their salt, bread and water. They did there and they all died. Just the uh, last example, uh, I spoke to a woman after the last Lent, the big Lent, and was on the phone for some other reason, but I just asked, how are you? She goes, oh, I feel very, very sick. And I said, okay. Um, I said, could it have been because of the Lent that you had? And she says, well, 
yes, I went to the doctor and said that my iron level is very low. And I said, so could it be from the fast? And she goes, the doctor said that the iron level was very low. So I had to press my tape recorder because you get tired of it. So does that mean it could be from the fast? And I suggested to her, maybe you might need some iron tablets. And she said, but I find fasting easy. She said, I find fasting easy. I said, okay, so you find fasting easy, but your iron level is low. This is a recording. So I said to her, have you ever thought of iron tablets? Sometimes that helps with people. Because I can't have iron tablets because I have to have blood transfusions. So we have a couple of doctors here. What's the, why is the iron tablets that blood transfusion? Do you know? Some people just can't tolerate iron tablets. They give them stomach cramps or bad diarrhoea or so it constipation. It just disagrees with mm. me. So they have to have transfusions when their iron goes really low. So she was saying to me that basically she is blood transfusion material, but she likes fasting because it's easy. So I said to her, how's your children going? Change the subject. That's what I always do, change the subject, because it just makes me a bit a thing. I said, oh, how are your children going? Good. This, And then I understood that I'm speaking to a proud, crazy, obsessed person Sorry, and deluded. So I said to her, how are your children? That's it. There's no point. Just kept on saying, but fasting. And another person I was speaking to, new to the church, a new person to the church, and he said, I'm going to do the fast. And I said, that's not a good idea because you don't know. I'm going to do the fast as it says in the calendar. Monday to Friday, no oil. Saturday and Sunday, oil. Okay, how about some fish or food? No, the calendar doesn't allow that. Only on... Palm Sunday. I said, okay. So that's what he said. I said, this and this and that. And he kept on going, but that's what the calendar says. But I said, but this is a recording again. So I've got that. My tape recorder comes into use when I'm talking to people like that because you just get tired of it. Anyway, he wrote me a quick email later on and he said, he didn't say I was correct with my warnings, but he said, this fast was very difficult. Because I was affected psychologically, I was affected emotionally, and my marriage was on the rocks. But at the end, he said, but we have to do what the calendar says. <laughs> How are your children? I said to him. <laughs> so, if I ask, How are your children? It could be two reasons. One reason could be because. It's, real, it's a real question, and one could be a diversion because I don't know what else to say apart from it's really hot today, isn't it? <laughs> now we go to prostrations. Laugh, but, but you know, some of you have got to be very... I was speaking to another young lady I speak to sometimes, and she has a history of fasting a lot. Anyway, when I was talking to her on the phone, I noticed that she was paranoid and she was saying to me things like um, she knew and she kind of knew what I was thinking and knew what was going on, I don't know, things like that. And I forgot that it was the Apostles' fast. And she herself said it. She said, I'm about the Apostles. I go, oh, are you fasting? I thought that, you know, because of your health that you've got, you've got a really big problem, that you should go, um, yeah, no, I'm fasting. And uh, 
I said to Bodhisattva Guru Adish, goes, well, do you bless me to stop the fast? I said, no, priests don't bless to break fasts because it's, um, priests don't bless people to do a sin. It's still a sin. I said, that's you have to realise yourself that if that's killing you and causing you damage and you're becoming mentally unwell and things like that because some fasting can do that because there's certain vitamins, if they're not getting it, it affects the brain, which they've even said now... What was it the other day I saw there on the... Uh, they've discovered there's a link between fish oil and some skit, people with schizophrenia, that people who have a, a fish oil can actually decrease their, their schizophrenic symptoms. So there's all these links. B6, I think, is another one. Is that B6? Is that one that's to do with mental? Yeah. All these things, anyway, there's a link. And you got some people cannot... They need to eat foods, sometimes eggs or whatever because they really get affected and they start getting paranoid and they go crazy. Anyway, she, she decided to stop the fast, which was, um, and she said that if I didn't stop the fast because I thought I was going to rip people apart because just, she just became very unwell. Anyway, she was wise. She, she did that. And she became better. So she actually speaks normal now. I didn't have to say to her how your children are because she listened. And I said... I don't bless people to break the fast. What you need to do is you need to make your decision and say, it's not working for me. Then when you go to confession, you say to the priest, Father, I couldn't keep the fast. That's it. Some people go to the priest and say, Father, can I break the fast? I don't think that's a good idea. If you can't do it, that's your business. If you break it, you go and you offer repentance. And that's, and that's what's done. Priests are very, sometimes they're very uncomfortable to actually say, okay, you can eat, because then people can say, oh, the Father said I can eat. And people say, oh, he's not a good priest because he's telling people not to fast. You can't do it. You bow down, you say, God, forgive me, I just can't. You've got to know, as a spiritual father told me in Jerusalem many years ago, I mean, don't look at me now, I've been through my fasting times, I got down to 60 kilos, right? And I didn't even go to Jenny Craig. And <laughs> I just uh, was fasting a lot, with, um, but that was even before I came with juices and things like that. And when I came to the church, it was easy. If I had children, maybe the priest would have said to me, how's my children? Because I said to him, it's easy. Because when I met this very spiritual person in Jerusalem, he says, you can't fast. I go, but why? I didn't even have any idea what he was talking about. He goes, uh, you, you can't fast. I said, but I find it easy. I was fasting before I even came to the church. I was able to have carrot juice, celery juice, spinach juice and beetroot juice. So I lost, I lost um, a lot of kilos, basically 60 kilos. My father was saying to me, what are you doing? I was like, what do you mean? He goes, you, because you, you, you can't even walk, you're dragging your feet. I said, I can't notice that. See, when you're blind, you're deceived. So when I make these jokes, the joke's on myself as well. So this spiritual father said you, that you shouldn't fast. He actually said it. He was a very, very spiritual person. He says, you should be your own doctor. I go, what do you mean? He goes, you have to see what your body needs, what you can do and what you can't do. Of course, I didn't listen. So I went to a monastery for a Lent period and I was fasting with the rest of the monks there. I wasn't a monk at the time, I was a layperson. This was back in 80, 83. And um, I was only 25 at the time, thought that I could do everything. And I was fasting away, had no problems. And then suddenly... Something happened and I got very sick. 
So the, the, the abbot of the monastery sent me to a specialist. I think I've told you this story before. The abbot of the monastery sent, sent me to a specialist in Athens because I was in Greece. And then um, the abbot later on spoke to the specialist and said, so what's wrong with him? He says, look, I would advise you, the doctor said, to get his coffin ready because the way he's going, he's not going to make it. So you can see that and, and the overweight problem that I've got now comes when you don't eat properly because later on the body revenges it just uh, it, it, it mucks around with the met metabolism so that's why you see the people that go on diets and then later on they become fatter than what they were it's because not necessarily that they're eating more but a lot of times it's just that they've mucked their body up their body doesn't know when they're hungry when they're not when the sugar when they're not it becomes like a whole mess So don't get upset because some of you that I'm talking about could be in the room. I'm making myself that it's the same thing. People in the beginning want to do things they just don't know. Then I remembered years later what that spiritual father in, he said to me. He says, you shouldn't do it like that strictly because you will get sick. And I did. Then I started to understand, not fully, it took another six or seven years before I really understood that I, that there are certain limitations. Everyone's got limitations. You've got to be very, very careful. Prostrations. In the Unseen Warfare, it says there that in their instructions on prayer, the Holy Fathers ordain a great number of bows. One of them said, prayer is not sufficient unless in prayer a man wearies his body with bows. We spoke about that in Talk 39. So... If you decide to follow this advice as much as you can, you will soon see the fruit of your labour. The fruit of your labour. So Elder Paisios says the following. When you feel like making prostration, the devil pushes you to make more than you can endure and if you're not strong, you become nervous because you go through with them. Then you feel anxious and desperation sets in, mild at first but then worse. So Elder Patience is saying that the devil can push people to even do prostration, which was what I was saying before. I remember when I was a novice, he speaks about himself now, before I would go to bed, temptation would tell me, are you sleeping? Get up. So many people are suffering in the world and so many are in need. I used to get up and start my prostrations. As soon as I would try to sleep again, it would start again. Quote, others are suffering in the world and you are sleeping. This is the demons telling him in his thoughts, you can't sleep, he was, they were saying to Elder Paisios when he was younger. Get up, pray, do prostrations for people that are need there, which is true. Monks do pray and nuns for the whole world. Others are suffering and you are sleeping, get up. And then he says, I would get up. I reached the point where I said, this is what he himself said, I wish I would lose my legs. I would then be justified since I could not do prostrations. And that's true. What he's saying there, he got to the stage where it became so difficult, so unbearable, that he wished that he had no legs, so he wouldn't have to do prostrations. And then he would say, now I don't have to do them anymore. Once during Great Lent, I barely made it because I tried to push myself more than I can endure. That Elder Paisos is admitting that he fell into the temptation, do, do, do more, 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 even though his wasn't necessarily out of pride, but more... So the devil uses different things, some proud, some legitimate things. They've got to do prostrations for the world. And uh, he said that he nini, he nini, as it says here, 
What did he say? He says, um, I barely made it because I tried to push myself more than I could endure. Another example is, this is an example which I have, a person, there was a person living in the world, as a lay person, and he would do prostrations, say he would do 200 a day. But when he went to the monastery to become a novice, the abbot said to him, no, I don't want you to do 200, don't want you to do what you're doing, because I used to do 200. Now, here, I just want you to start with 50. So he started to do the 50, but he found them so, so difficult. He couldn't understand. How come in the world I could do 200, but now I can only do 50? I can't even do 50. So I went back to the abbot. The abbot said, okay, cut it down, cut it down. At the end, he was only doing a few. And the abbot said, just do a few. The, the 200 were done when he was in the world with self-will and pride. He was energised by his pride. But when he went into the monastery, which is obedience... That's when a lot of that goes. No, you will do exactly what we tell you. You will do 20 or 30 or whatever. And he couldn't do it. St. Ignatius has a beautiful example, which I... Just one second, excuse me. He says, for the spiritual guidance of... Our beloved brethren, we shall not be silent about the following. Bows performed for the sake of quantity and not based on the right working of the mind and heart are more harmful than profitable. Having performed them, the ascetic or the, or the struggler, anyone, begins to rejoice. He says to himself, like the Pharisee mentioned in the gospel, there, God has granted me again today to make 300 prostrations. Glory to God, wasn't that easy to do? In these times, who can do 300 prostrations? Who keeps such a prayer rule nowadays? And so on. So St. Ignatius is given a beautiful example there of a person who was, who fell into deception with quantity. Yet he could do 300 prostrations. See how he's praising himself? Now, St. Ignatius says, we must remember that bowels heat the blood. And by heating the blood excessively, they help to stem, stimulate mental activity. I talked about this in talk 39. Physical activity stimulates the mind. The mind, the blood goes to it. When we physically, uh, when, when we're physical, blood can rush to the mind, to, to our brains, and this helps to stimulate mental activity, and that's good. That's why a lot of people say to students, don't just sit down. You know, when you, you know, the good thing is a person who studies but also does exercise to help in the, in the stimulation of the mind. So, having reached such a state, the poor ascetic, just because he has no idea of the soul's true working, surrenders to mental activity which is harmful to the soul, such as vainglorious thoughts and fantasies. He thinks he's making progress because of his ascetic labours. Now, the problem with the stimulation of the mind is we've got to make sure that what we're thinking while the mind's being stimulated is positive, it's proper. In this case, when a person's fallen into deception, he's doing prostrations, and the blood is rushing around in his body and goes to his mind, what happens is that the person, if he's not thinking in the correct way, starts to have things like, oh, I'm good, look at me, I'm doing all these prostrations. So the, and this becomes quite strong in him because of the fact that the mind's been stimulated. The ascetic enjoys 
when we say the ascetic, it means all of us Christians. The ascetic, the struggler, enjoys these thoughts and fantasies. He cannot have enough of them. See, people say, I fantasise in my mind and I have pleasures. It could be anything. I fantasise that I'm a king. I fantasise that I'm a pop star. I fantasise that I'm handsome or good-looking or whatever. So people fantasise in their mind, they get enjoyment. Well, that's the same as worldly people fantasise. People in the church can also fantasise about themselves in a vainglorious way. And this is not good. And they feel joy. So he begins to enjoy these thoughts and fantasies. He cannot have enough of them and he accepts them. By doing this, he plants within himself the harmful or deadly passion of self-love. In other words, egotism. So, not that physical activity with the prostrations is bad, that the blood is right. That's what the, the point is that our mind must not be with fantasies and stupidities, but with spiritual things. The result of self-love is that we condemn our brothers, our neighbours. That's how you know, how we know if we fall into, de- into deception. And also an open tendency to preach to others. Obviously, so people begin to tell people, oh, no, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. Try and convert their family and cause problems. Obviously, such an attitude is a sign of pride and self-deception. One could never dare to teach others unless he considers himself above his neighbour in the first place, and then in brackets, I put not saying others, unless someone who's been called to do it, if they're clergy or the bishop or whatever. But now I'm talking about people in general, that when people become deceived, a lot of times one of them is they look at everyone else and go, he's no good, I'm better than him, etc. And the second thing is to go and help people, preach to people and say, that shouldn't be done, you shouldn't smoke, you can't do that, and you've got to go to church, and you've got to confess, and you're going to go to hell, and all these type of things. Such is the fruit of all bodily labour that is not motivated by the intention to repent and that does not have repentance as its sole aim. So if we are doing bodily labours, whether it's fasting or prostrations, etc., and we don't have as our aim repentance, that's not good. One should not give value to the labour itself, as what St Macarius said earlier. Don't make an idol of your practices. Don't make an idol of your prostrations or your fasting or whatever. This means that one should not be self-satisfied and excited or overjoyed by the quantity of prayers and the time spent in doing these prayers or prostrations. Whether. Otherwise, this would lead to pharisaical self-esteem. That's what the Pharisees had. They were proud that they fasted. They were proud that they, whatever practice they prayed, etc. They were proud about that. And that's how they became hard-hearted and became God-murderers, as, and as John said, deicide, the killing of God. But of course, God can't die, but it's, this, it's the fact that that's what they wanted. And as a man, obviously, he died. Um, now we go to almsgiving. Again, I have to say here that I am not going to speak because of this positive-negative business, so I'll, let, I'll read the Bible again so that we can see how Christ presents the topic of almsgiving. Because remember, some people can say, oh, you're negative. You always talk about Phariseeism and vainglory and pride and demons and all these type of things. Well, let's see how Christ said. What did he say about pray, praying? Don't pray like the hypocrites by letting people to see you... Like, you know. What did he say about fasting? Don't pray like the hypocrites that you want to be seen. Let's see what he says about almsgiving, when you give money to the poor. 
Be careful, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do your charitable deeds, your arms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may see, uh, have glory from men. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you do charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be seen in secret. And your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Again, negative in the beginning, see? Don't do it to show off. So we see in the three things that we read today from the Bible, and the prostration's not in the Bible necessarily there, but Saint Ignatius and all the saints, the same thing, be careful, be careful, Pharisee. We just read the whole thing about prostrations. Let's see why. Why does Christ say be careful, be careful, be careful all the time? See what he says, says Blessed Theophilact? Be careful, take heed, as if speaking of some terrible wild beast. Be careful that it does not tear you apart. If you give alms before men, so he's saying, saying uh, elder, blessed Theophilus is saying that Christ is treating vainglory like a beast, like you're scared of a beast that doesn't rip you apart. That's what Christ is saying. Be careful of the beast. Little people were scared of the beast, the 666. Got the obsession with the 666. See, so they say the beast, the beast, the mark of the beast and all that type of stuff. And we'll come to a lot about that later on. But forget about the other beast, the beast in us, which is vainglory. Be careful, sorry, if you give alms, Blessed Theophilus says, before men, but your motive is not to be seen by them, you are not condemned. But if your motive is vainglory, then even if you give alms from within your inner chamber, meaning even in, in some secret way, but you want, but you want to be proud about it, you are condemned. For it is the intent that God either punishes or crowns. God looks at the intent. He looks at what's in the soul of the person at the time that they're fasting or doing prostrations or praying or almsgiving, etc. That's what God looks at. The Orthodox Study Bible says, in other words, God is not impressed with what others think of us nor by what we think of ourselves. God will reward good deeds when they are based on pure motives of the heart, that we're doing it from, from our heart for proper reasons. The hypocrites, blessed Theophilus says, did not actually have trumpets, where Christ says they, like they're doing a trumpet so everyone can look at them. The Lord here is putting down, is putting down their thoughts, for they wanted their arms given to be trumpeted. They wanted... Like, it's like they were blowing trumpets. Look at me, look at me, I'm going to give money to the poor. Hypocrites are those who differ in appearance from what they really are. And the original meaning, by the way, of hypocrite was actor. The real, an actor, in the, in the old days, they didn't say, they didn't call them actors, they used to call them hypocrites. The word hypocrite we later on developed. A person who used to do acting was called a hypocrite. But then they changed it into meaning the hypocrite, like someone who's been... Dishonest. Because what is an actor doing? An actor is acting someone that is not. And that's why the church forbids acting. As long as I don't even know why they do these plays sometimes in churches, 
where they do nativity scenes and one person's Christ and one's the mother of God and angels and shepherds. I don't understand. It's like we're teaching the children what? Is it going to be... Um, are we training them to go to Hollywood later on and pursue a career in acting? I don't, I, I don't know. For some reason, I don't understand that. But anyway, some churches do it. But we're teaching the children to be something that they're not. That's why I feel sorry when I see young children acting, like real young children from young, when they're really young, like some of them are three, four years old, when they're, they don't even know who they are yet. And they're acting parts of that they're not even... And that's why a lot of them become a mess. And they have to go through a lot of psychological help. Oh, it's, just, it's just terrible. It's really cruel. Uh, Harry Potter, he was around 11 when he started. But he looks like a mess too, the poor thing. Um, did you hear the, the, the bad news that there's no more movies and the kids are very upset, adults are very upset? Yeah, because that's it, it's finished. The books are finished and the movies are finished. And the world is devastated because there's no more Harry Potter uh, shows. And, you know, kids that watch those, they watch them and watch them. They don't watch them once. They watch them again and again and again and again. Brain them, brainwash themselves in that whole culture. They're not very well, those poor kids. Now, some of you might say, are you saying that every, all those kids that watch Harry Potter become sick? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Especially when they're young. The younger they are, the sicker they become. They say, you know, they're letting kids as young as three, four, five watch those shows. And those shows, I try, I've watched the first one just to see what it was about. And I think I tried to watch, not the third one, I think. And as I said to you another time, it was so bad, it was so satanic that um, I, usually I can take those. I couldn't take it. I was just like, it was uh, causing trouble. I felt like a demonic spirit. It was, wasn't, it wasn't good. And I said, that, and I heard that as they went on, they became worse and worse. This one here was the worst one. It's number seven, I think. It was very much full of demonic things, satanic. Oh, it was really bad. Jackson's the best example of that sort of like a lot of those child actors they go on to having drug and alcohol and Him. psychological and I think Michael Jackson would be the best example of that sort of because he was very young as well he was very young and forced into that role and and now they're doing the other thing now which is the um the pageant things for the little girls this um all these creeps are coming from America where they're going to try and bring that thing here to have little girls as two to three years old to dress up like models and things like that, sexualising them and things. And some people are complaining about it and they go, what's wrong, it's just for fun. That's, that's, that, that's another sickness. But anyway, what are we going to do? Can we stop them? No. But that's between them and God. That's not my business. As an Orthodox priest, I'm speaking to Orthodox people. Don't do those things. Don't put your children in front of TV. Don't pro promote them into these singing things and other type of things to make them proud and things like that. We can see how many of them have level heads. As our friend said here, they go on drugs and this, and that. it's just a poor thing. There are, anyway, so Orthodox Study Bible says, hypocrites are play actors practising piety for show, designed to please men rather than God, wearing masks of compassion, inwardly they are heartless, they pretend that they've got mercy, that they care for the poor, but inside they're heartless. Their reward is the applause of men and nothing more. Now, by Christ over-exaggerating, 
where he says things like, if it's possible, do not even be aware yourself that you are giving alms. Obviously you're aware because you're, you're the one that's given it. So you're noticing yourself that you're given it. So what is, why did Christ say something which sounds quite impossible? He says, or in, or in another sense as well, the left hand represents vainglory and the right hand almsgiving. Let not your vainglory be aware of your almsgiving. Obviously you're aware, but we don't want our vainglory to be aware. Not for us to look at ourselves helping the poor and saying to ourselves, aren't I good? Or for others to look at us. So, the parable of the, the publican and the Pharisee is an excellent example because I just did all those examples there. There, it's all of them all put into one. The, the Pharisee was highly respected and he observed the law to the letter. The tax collector, the publican, was despised as a sinner who was working with the Romans. He was taking the tax for the, for the Romans but also taking more. And people hated him. They looked at him as a cheat. And we read there, we, we, all of you know about the publican and the Pharisee. And Blessed Philip says, The Lord unceasingly expelled... This is what I was going to say before. Why does Christ, even this parable here, again, it's negative. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, one was a... In some way, it's, it's negative because he's putting down the Pharisee, etc. But it's positive as well. And Blessed Theophilus says, the Lord unceasingly expels the passion of pride in many ways. This passion, more than any other, disturbs our thoughts, and for this reason, the Lord always and everywhere teaches on this subject. That's why for the fasting, for the prayer, praying, and for the almsgiving, did Christ say, don't be like the hypocrites, be careful, vainglory, etc., etc., because Saint Theophilus is saying, because this is the worst passion. It's a disease. Christ came to heal. It's like you go to a doctor and you say to the doctor, I, I've got a problem. I've got some, something wrong with me. And the doctor says to you, how are your children? Or it's a nice day. Well, what's that? You want to hear and be helped. That's why Christ came as a doctor to heal. If he's not going to speak about the worst disease that existed in that time, which was Pharisaism, what's the point? And that's the same today as priests. Priests today, which is why I've spent so many talks. How many talks did I do? Oh, one. Oh, child, you have massacred the demon. And no wonder even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. What do we need to know to understand the deception of our times? It's 34. 35. Seeking signs and miracles, beneficial or harmful. Signs and miracles versus God's words, which produces the, wrongest, the strongest faith. More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep us about those who want to see miracles. And number 38, which is a four-hour talk, pride and vainglory are spiritual cancer. Why, do I, why did I do all those talks for? Because as a priest... That is the disease which exists today. There is no orthodoxy, there's no spirituality as long as that disease is there and people aren't aware of it. If I sit down here and talk to you about other things, how to venerate an icon, talk about fasting, that you, you know which days are ours, which ones are not, 
and other things like that, then I'm not doing my job. And that is why Christ in everyone, that's why I did it on purpose at the negative. See, people say, oh, but aren't you being negative? Christ was negative for the three times and even negative in the publican and Pharisee because it says the Lord unceasingly expels. In other words, cleanses. The, from the, he wants to cleanse people from the passion of pride in many ways. This passion, more than any other passion, disturbs our thoughts and for this reason the Lord always and everywhere teaches on this subject right through his teachings. St. Nikolai said two men, two sinners, with the difference that the Pharisee did not see himself as a sinner, while the publican did. The Pharisee's pride and certainty of his righteousness, that is, he thought he was spiritually healthy, in itself is sufficient to show how sick he really was. The Pharisee was spiritually sick, from, uh, was from unrighteousness and how this had blunted him. He had become spiritually insensitive. He had become spiritually dead. While the other person, who was a t- the tax collector, we know what happened there. We'll, we'll read now. What is the church if not a place where the sick meet their physician? That's what church is about. Those sick from sin come to confess their sickness to God, the physician, the doctor, and to find medicine and healing from him. Christ is the true healer from all human sufferings and weakness. But the Pharisee, in the madness of his sickness, no longer knows he is ill. That's the worst condition to be. I don't mind a person when they come and they say, I'm a mess, I I can't pray properly, I do this, I get angry, I tell off my kids, I'm jealous, I've got this, I've got that. I don't mind that. I can work with that. But when a person comes to me, like one day one person came to me and said, I said, so what passions do you have? What do you feel? He goes, nothing. This happened even here, nothing. Once when I was visiting a mental hospital, St Nikolai says, the doctor took me in front of a wire screen and behind there was the most seriously ill of his patients, the one that was the maddest. I asked him, how do you feel? He immediately replied, how do you think I feel among all these madmen? So the mad person couldn't see and that's the truth what's one of the problems of a lot of mentally ill people they don't see themselves as sick and as long as that happens they really can't be healed and the same in the spiritual in in the in the church the priest's job is to help the people that come to be healed by this parable christ wanted to show twisted piety and false pharisaism for what they really are right down through all generations of Christians to our own day. Are there not today, St Nicholas says, men among us who pray to God in just the same way? Do not many of us say, God, I fast, I go to church, I pay my taxes. I don't think St Nicholas would have known that that doesn't exist much anymore. Uh, But anyway, God, I fast, I go to church, I pay my taxes and make donations to the church. I am not as other men. Thus they speak and God listens to them and sends them home empty, like the Pharisee, saying to them, I do not recognise the description of yourselves that you give me. I know you not. Remember in the Bible it says, I know you not. Lord, Lord, we did this and we did this. I know you not. For God does not recognise his friends by their words, like St John the Baptist 
as I said early on. He didn't trust words when they said, I have sinned. I have sinned because I did this, this and this. That wasn't enough. So Christ says, I'm not interested in words because words are words. For God does not recognise his friends by their words, but by their hearts. The true man of prayer is always a true penitent. That means if someone is really praying, has got true prayer, he will be repentant. How do we know that someone is a true penitent? God be merciful to me a sinner as the publican did. God be merciful to me a sinner, hitting his heart, because that's where we feel the sin. Um, God be merciful to me a sinner is the prayer that God wants. That's all. Saint Ephraim the Syrian says, man's repentance is God's celebration. See, God, man's repentance, not man's virtues necessarily where everything's going right. Man's repentance is, is God's celebration. Saint Isaac the Syrian says, until a man achieves humility, he will receive no reward for his works, whether he fasts, pray, prays, um, almsgiving, and the other one which was fasting, prostrations, whatever, that if that's done with pride, not that we're not going to have pride while we're doing it, as long as we're struggling, you can't be free of pride. But I'm saying is when a person's completely deluded and doesn't even know that he's got it, the reward is given not for works. God does not reward works, even though we have to do it. What does God reward? Humility. Inward humility is blessed, not outward uh, ex external things. And St. Nicholas says, and who is the person who's humble? Who, who belittles themselves? Who condemns himself? Who truly is humble? Not the man who tries to appear smaller than he is. Because we can just say, I'm the worst. Remember that I said before, people say, I'm a sinner. I'm, I, don't say, I don't like that type of things. Not the man who tries to appear smaller than he is. But the one who sees his smallness because of his sin, that's a humble person. A person who says, I'm, a, I'm sinful because I'm full of hate. Or I'm sinful because when I see someone is better than me, I get jealous. Or I'm sinful because when I see someone with a nice house or a nice wife or whatever, I'm jealous, I wish them bad. These are the things where a person says, look how evil I am. The publican, when he came to the synagogue and he was praying, why was he saying he's sinful? Because he knew that he was stealing money from the people and he came to realise, this is wrong. So that's the true humble person, a person who sees himself as small because of his sin. God seeks of us no other belittlement, no other condemnation, like self-condemnation, no humility, in other words, than the sense and acknowledgement of our sinfulness. That's what God wants. People say, oh, look at that, it's hopeless. And that's hopeless. All the souls are going to hell. It's that. But what are we hearing here? We're hearing God wants what? A contrite and humble heart God will not despise. Psalm 50. God doesn't want all these sacrifices, etc. We do them, but the main aim, the purpose of why we do them, is to have a contrite and humble heart. And... Um, to the man who senses and acknowledges the depths to which sin has sunk him, it is impossible to sink lower. St. Macarius the Great says, A humble man never falls. Being already lower than any, where can he fall? 
When we fall into sins, it's because of pride. When we fall into big sins, it's because of pride. And sometimes God allows that for our good. But even then, we don't fall into despair. We say, I fell because I must have had some secret passion of pride in me. And I fell. It's, and then you, and then you, So the saints, if they had humility, the more, say this is the ground, we have the, if we're humble, if we're close to the ground, we think low of ourselves and we fall, there's not much to fall, you see? But when we fall and, it's, and it really hurts when it's very bad is when we're up here because we think we're great. And then when we fall, a person says, oh, I can't believe it, I thought that I was spiritual, I thought I was good, how can I fall? And then they become embarrassed, how can I go to my spiritual father? It's taken me three years to show him how good I am. How am I going to go now and tell him that I fell into that sin? that I did something like that was really embarrassing to say. But that's when the real spiritual life starts. When you come with shame and confess and say, look, look at me, look, look what I've fallen to. So, in brief, the Pharisee cannot be healed, nor can we, if that's where we are, because he cannot see that he is sick. The publican, the tax collector in other words, is a sick man who is on the way to being healed because he has recognised his sickness. He puts himself under the physician, who is Christ, and taken his medicine, which is humility. I added that. St. Isaac the Syrian writes, if anyone does not recognise himself as a sinner, his prayer is not acceptable to God. So in other words, his prayer, whether his prayer, whether his fasting or whatever, as I spoke about today, the aim of spiritual life is to acquire a sense, a feeling of our sinfulness. If that doesn't exist, we're not going well. And that's why the saints, they did miracles, they raised people from the dead, they preached, they converted nations, they healed, they could raise themselves, some of them in the air. They did so many great miracles. But all of those great saints said, Today I didn't feel my sinfulness. Today I didn't feel sorrow for my sins. Everything else that I did, all those miracles, they're all a waste. That's not important. Those things happen because God allows whatever. But for them, the most important thing was for them to repent every day. And that's the purpose of our prayers. That's why we said before, the first gift which Christ gives to the person who prays the first gift that God gives to a person who's leading a proper spiritual life, the first gift, not to do miracles, not to know what people are thinking, not to see dreams, not to be able to fast great with big fast, not to be able to do 300 prostrations. The first gift which God gives, and this is the way we know that somehow our spiritual life is bearing fruits, is one thing and one thing only. The awareness of our sinfulness. As soon as we begin to feel that we're yucky, that we're off, that we're full of sins, that's when spiritual life begins. Repenting for our sins and the awareness of our sinfulness are essential to the true development of spiritual life. And the last thing St. Ignatius says, seeing our sins and our sinfulness is a gift of God. That's what we should ask God. Not for these other things. Not to know the Bible off by heart. That's why I don't quote much. I have to write it down. I don't know hardly anything from the Bible off by heart. I've never, I've done, I don't know Protestants. I know they sit down and learn. I don't. 
I always say to myself, why come I don't know it? And sometimes I listen to other preachers and they, they're quoting from the Bible and I say, but I don't really know them off by heart. And then I say, well, I don't really try to learn them off by heart because why am I going to learn it off by heart for? What is that? What is that? And Saint Elder Leonard, I think, says that when we try to memorise things from books, it becomes out of, because it's out of pride. When things are needed to come to your head, to your mind, they'll come of their own. Don't force it. It only opens up the doors for pride. Why is it if these things help us, prostrations and fasting, or help us to acquire grace, and when we get grace, the first thing we should feel is our sinfulness, why aren't we feeling it? Why is it a lot of people today do not feel their sinfulness even though they're doing these ascetical practices? Obviously, one of the reasons is because of pride, but some people are sincerely doing them, they're trying, but they still don't feel they haven't broken through that iceberg in their heart where they can really sense their sinfulness. And this is where I was leading to, but I didn't get time, is the next talk is there is something missing. And that is that the fasting, prayer, even prayer, prostrations and all those almsgiving, they, on their own, don't bring us the grace of God, even though we might think it does bring, but it brings us the grace of God when it is joined with something else. And in the next talk, this is where I'll be aiming is, what is this something else that's missing? Because those things on their own can bring Phariseeism. Those things, even prayer, Elder Macarius says, a person who just prays but does not do something, which I'm going to tell you next time, that is dangerous. And that is the aim of the next talk. Very, very important. Can you give us a hint? Yeah, can you tell us? Now, I want you to think about it. At least I got you inquisitive, both of you. That's good. What is it that's missing? Why is it that we're fasting and praying and some do prostrations and give some money to the Red Cross? Why don't we feel our sins? If we don't feel our sins, it means that we have not been given the grace of God. And those things are meant to give us the grace of God. So something's missing. It is truly me. with the Spirit's bright beaming rays through thy sacred praise, for which cause we extol thy sacred festival with gratitude and longing, O fair and all-famed Euphemia. O praise the Lord, ye nations, praise him, all ye peoples. Thou didst suffer the raging fire that was given up unto beasts, 
Thou, O comely virgin, was cast into a pit. Thou was stretched out on the torture wheel, from which thou was freed again by the maker of all things, who cast shame on him that devised such hard things for thee. And the Lord glorify thee, who didst clearly preach the one Christ into natures, O holy martyr Euphemia. For he hath made his most well over us, and the truth of the Lord abideth forever. The most hallowed Euphemia, put to shame for all time to come, Efti Histioscorus, with those of like mind, the madden senseless acephalized disease with no hope of cure, for she preached aloud that Christ being too fall forth in his wills and his energies, yet is one in hypostasies and person as the cries of holy fathers, with mighty voice have made manifest. O Christ, thy bride and lamb, being wounded with longing and fervent love for thee, her own heavenly bridegroom, ran ardently after thee, ever holding her shining lamp, which was brightly kindled with the oil of the virtues. By her pleadings rescue us from all kinds of danger, since thou art compassionate. For the horde of heretics was sunk in infamy and shame, and derision and reproach covered their faces when they saw their wicked tomb cast down under thy feet, O martyr. But in thine honoured hands a rich a right belief, which justly accused the utter foolishness of the heretical misbelievers. As it cried out unto all the world, our Christ was brought forth to fold in nature, and in will to fold also. Loving thy bridegroom, Christ, O Lord and Martyr, and ever keeping thy lamp ready in splendor, thou shinest bright with virtues, O Euphemia, wherefore thou hast entered in with him into the marriage, and thou hast received from him crowns for victory in contest. Hence rescue us from perils and all harm, as we observe thy memorial faithfully. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. To God's birth giver, let us run now most earnestly. We sin as all, and wretched ones, and fall prostrate. In repentance calling from the depths of our souls, Lady, come unto our aid, have compassion upon us. Hasten thou, for we are lost in a throng of transgressions. Turn not thy servants away with empty hands, for thee alone do we have as our only hope. Ye brethren, let us now be cleansed in our lips, our soul, and our heart, that we all may draw for ourselves never failing riches from the martyr's holy shrine, which the famous Euphemia now freely doth pour forth, as she lieth in our midst, he plainly seen by all. 
as with faith we all call her blessed and in ardent longing revere her let us crown her head with godly songs of praise with patience i waited patient for the lord and he was attentive unto me like an anvil thou didst stand before the ungodly tyrant's tribunal holy unharmed by thy pains preaching clearly unto all that Christ is perfect God, who had taken flesh on himself in two wills and natures. O thou comely virgin martyr, blessed Euphemia, wherefore at thy feet thou didst cast down the ungodly heretic's volume, while thou tookest ours with zeal into thy hands. He set my feet upon a rock, and he ordered my steps aright. We all sing thy praise with faith and love, and with sacred songs and divine hymns we call thee blessed in truth. O famed Euphemia, thou valiant martyr of Christ, on thy venerable festival, we gather together, drawn by love for thy confession of our saving faith, and we supplicate thee with fervor, by thine intercessions preserve us, shelter and deliver us from every harm. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. All new wonders surpassing all the ancient wonders, who hath known of a mother with a husband giving birth, and carrying in her arms, him that holdeth all creation. He that is born is of God's will, in that thou carriest him in thine arms as a babe, O pure one, and has boldness towards him as his mother. Cease not from entreating him in behalf of them that honour thee, that he have pity and save our souls. O Euphemia, Christ's comely virgin, thou didst fill the orthodox with gladness, and didst cover with shame all the heretics. For at the holy fourth council in Chalcedon, thou didst confirm what the fathers decreed aright. O all glorious great martyr, do thou entreat Christ God, that his great mercy may be granted unto us. Both now and ever, unto the ages of ages. Amen.